0: Our fifth match is Disco Inferno versus Dean Malenko for Malenko's WCW Cruiserweight Championship. Let me try and say WCW without being weird this time. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days and not so good old days of World Championship Wrestling series by series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and joining me fresh from his beach-themed training montage is Alec Bridgen.
1: I feel very refreshed in a very succinct manner.
0: (laughs) How's it going tonight, Al? Good. How's it going with you? Doing good. We are fresh from having a... uh, hurricane passed through the region, and thankfully, uh, for for us anyway, it it passed us by. um, Obviously, sending our best wishes and and prayers to anyone who was affected by that storm. Of course, yeah. Tonight, we are taking a look at Bash at the Beach 1996. This is no day at the beach. What a weird tagline for a beach-themed show. Yeah. It's like if on the Road Wild series, they'd had a tagline like, Where we're going, we don't need roads.
1: Yeah. (laughs) It could be, like, not just a day at the beach.
0: Yeah, 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 there you go. That's a better one.
1: Yeah, I mean, I get the idea. You know, the day at the beach is supposed to be a calm, relaxing thing of, you know, nothing important. You know, just, it's you do it in the summer, you know, or if you're in Florida all year round, because it's, you know, never cold here. (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. So I get the idea, but it's like, it's weird that it's on your beach-themed show. Like if you then that for the extra after Bash the Beach ninety five, I totally get it. Especially because I was literally on the beach.
0: What would that have been at the time? Fall brawl probably.
1: I think so. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so that would that would make more sense. Yeah.
1: Or if you're trying if you're trying to make like the nitro, post Bash the Beach one that again that would make sense. Yeah. But here, yeah, it's definitely very confusing.
2: Yeah.
0: Bash of the Beach 1996 was held on July 7th, 1996 at the Ocean Center in Daytona Beach, Florida. So this is a day at the beach, actually. Yes. In front of 8,300 fans, 6,400 paid, which is recorded as a sellout. The Ocean Center holds anywhere from 6,176 to 9,440, depending on the arrangement. So WCW did a good job filling it up this time. Mm-hmm, yeah. According to our usual source, Bash at the Beach 1996 earned 175,000 pay-per-view buys, which is actually significantly less than 1994 or 1995, huh. which earned 230,000 and 210,000 respectively. Interesting. Yeah, it's surprising considering what's going on with WCW at this point. Obviously, going into the show, the fans didn't know exactly how important this event would end up being. Sure. But even so, I really would have expected this to earn more buys than 1995, at least.
1: Yeah, right?
0: We're actually right at the start of Nitro's famous winning streak in TV ratings versus Raw, which started on June 17th, 1996. So we know that they're attracting an audience. Mm -hmm. Now, I should note at this point that there's a ton of different sources for wrestling pay-per-view figures, and in my experience, they many times disagree. Okay. Some only have the buy rate, not an actual number of purchases, and based on my understanding, translating that into a straight number of purchases requires knowing the total potential audience at the time, and I don't. Ah. That said, just for the sake of argument, ProWrestlingHistory.com has listed buy rates for Bash of the Beach 1994, 1995, and 1996, which are 1.02, 0.82, and 0.71, respectively. So unless the total potential audience is wildly larger in 1996 than in 1995 or 1994, it seems like it did have at least some audience decline, which feels weird,
1: yeah it's because I obviously bar- my part of this is I watch the Nitros and they're really selling you on if there's one show you have to see, this is the most important show you gotta see this, yeah, they are hard selling this, and as we historically speaking, they are correct,
0: yeah, justifiably, this is yeah. absolutely an enormous show, so it's it's shocking to me if-
1: it's very surprising yeah i would I would assume it was maybe. Down from, like, an earlier show in the year, perhaps, but not down from the previous year.
0: Yeah. Prior to the pay-per-view, WCW held one dark match, and then four matches on their main event television show. Jim Powers bested Hugh Morris in the dark match. On main event, the Steiner brothers beat Harlem Heat by disqualification in a match for the Heat's WCW World Tag Team Championship. I know the title doesn't change hands on a disqualification, but that really still feels like it should have been on the pay-per-view.
1: It does, yeah, or on a Nitro thing as well. Yeah. Because, yeah, well, as I'll cover during the follow-up bit, there's a bunch of stuff that happens that they pre-taped before Hog Wild. hmm Just logistically, because, you know, they have all this time and expense traveling there. So I can get why they, they have, like, 20 matches that take place before the show, but not really the issue here. That is very odd, like, they decided what matches matter and what matches didn't.
0: Yeah, there's definitely matches on this actual show that I feel could have been swapped to the TV show, so that the World Tag Team Championship could be on the big event.
2: (laughs) Yeah.
1: I will say there's definitely a general feeling of making that title, or I guess those titles in this case, seem less important. Not necessarily devaluing them completely, but it's definitely feeling like they are things to have, but... The storyline with the NWO, as we know, to come about and you know world title situation, that's more important.
0: At the same time, I mean, when the NWO ends up taking the world tag team titles, trying to take it back from them is near as much a focus of the following year's storyline as trying to take the world title title from Hogan.
1: Oh, agreed. Yeah,
0: it's a little. It's just odd to me that not long before that, you're seeing the title kind of devalued like that.
1: Right. Yeah. When as I'll cover later the title change that happens to build up a match we don't actually see is done in a very weird manner, To more to that point. Okay. Absolutely. Uh,
0: Otherwise, Bobby Walker beat Billy Kidman, the Rock and Roll Express beat Fire and Ice, and Eddie Guerrero beat Lord Steven Regal. So, this is a massively important show for WCW, but will the quality hold up? To find out... Let's go to the ring. We open with a video package covering the hostile takeover set to a guitar theme that sounds like that moment in an 80s action film when the heroes had a setback but now they know the stakes so they're headed for the bad guys base to turn everything around.
1: Mhm. It does, yeah. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> it's like it's a very specific tone.
1: <laughs> yeah. It'd be funny if that was like stock turn music, which probably it is. Yeah, mm-hmm. like it'd be, like if when we ever cover those Hulk movies, you know, TNT, it'd oh. be funny if those get reused. Like, oh, it's that theme again. Yeah. As we know, they do reuse themes.
0: The gravitas of the video package is slightly spoiled by the fact that the video opens with a surfboard-themed logo and a CG shark fin swimming through the water, but good effort on blending some very different themes, guys. Yeah. There's no narration and not even any sound from the clips they show, but that actually kind of helps this have a very different feel. We even get a close-up of a cop's hand on his sidearm, which certainly emphasizes that this is not a normal wrestling angle. Yeah. At least the gun wasn't drawn and pointed in Hulk Hogan's face this time. I
1: was going to say, it's been a while since we've, we've had a gun drawn on the show.
0: Was that Spring Stampede 2000? It think? was, yes. One of many, many things about that show that was very weird.
1: Hulk, yeah, Hulk facing down a bunch of cops when he tries to get to Bischoff and in uh, yeah.
0: yeah. Still, still have never seen Hogan look that legitimately terrified.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know he's not a good actor, so...
0: Yeah. Host Tony Schiavone welcomes us to the show. Alongside co-hosts, the American Dream Dusty Rhodes and Bobby the Brain Heenan. Sadly, everybody is dressed up rather than wearing beachwear this year. Though Dusty's all-black suit looks badass.
1: Yeah, I will say to that point, <clears throat> I totally love the beach outfits. Whether or you know, Tony's having his uh, stuff on his nose. Yes, on the beach blast ones. I think they remember they were worried about how the footage would look out of context. The later. mood, yeah, yeah, with the mood in the mood like. So, like, if they're replaying stuff on Nitro, or, you know, later on Thunder, when that comes a thing, or just historically speaking in general, and it's like, this is a serious thing, and Tony's got that, you know, Orange and o stuff on again. Right, yeah. Outside the show, you'd be like, why is he dressed like that? Yeah.
0: Yeah, you'd kind of need, if if you were going to do the beach where you'd need it to be something where they could take off a goofier part of the outfit to look more serious after yeah. the events of the show. Like, if you had him with the leis that they wear at some points... You could have them going into the main event, remove those. Oh, yeah, there you go. I I could see it being interesting to try to do because it could cause, you know, a a very interesting, like, tonal dissonance. Yeah. Like, it would set it up as them not expecting things to be as serious as they become. But I agree with the way that they do the commentary on the show. I think it is better that they dressed up because they're clearly not going for that tonal dissonance. They, They actually are treating this as a majorly serious event.
2: Yeah, for sure.
0: Uh, speaking <laughs> speaking of things looking deadly serious, but, you know, the reverse. We're back in an arena this year, but they've done a very nice job with the stage. It is set up with sand, surfboards, beach tents, a ginormous beach ball, and even those faded birds from earlier years, though I think they might have been repainted. They look a tad brighter.
1: One of them looks a little better, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. The walkway I really liked. It's even set, to, set up to look like a wooden boardwalk leading up it to is. the ramp.
1: Yeah, yeah. They could have more fun with this, though. You know, we, we'd like to joke about the, uh, as I as we call it, or it's like, as I call it, the fat guy step on yes. there. They could have made it like a surfboard or something. <laughs> let's, get, let's get him hang ten while he's shooting everything. Have a nice touch.
0: Tony notes that Eric Bischoff is nowhere to be found. The three discuss the main event. A six-man tag with the WCW team of Sting, Lex Luger, and Randy Savage. Facing the Outsiders, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall, with a mystery third partner. Heenan says that WCW is full of energy and ready to face the Outsiders, and Dusty says it's tempting to say they should just start with that six man match and get it done. Dusty openly wonders if Bischoff might be a hostage and wonders who the third man is. Tony throws to our first match. So, our first match is Psychosis versus Rey Mysterio Jr., and the referee is Jimmy Jett. Mike Tenay joins the commentary team for this one.
1: Uh, in the previous show, Rey Mysterio debuted uh, against Steve Malenko and failed to win the title. He got a rematch on a subsequent Nitro, which he would also lose. This is really kind of the start of them trying to bring in more outside talent like that, and, and more importantly, signing them. So as far, as far as I saw on any Nitros, mind you, I didn't watch all Saturday night's, Psychosis is a brand new character to the shows. Now, obviously, he's not a new person to Ray. They famously fought about a year earlier, numerous times in ECW, mm-hmm. which is basically the reason why they have this match on the show. Because they, you know, they tore the house down, as they say, two or three times on ECW. So let's just do that again, but on a bigger stage.
0: And and Tanae does a pretty good job during the match of building up that these two have a longer running rivalry, you know, in former federations and everything. So. Mm-hmm.
1: He gets shy of saying ECW, but they try to lean into the next class, but which is which is easier to deal with. Yeah.
0: Psychosis is in his paladin colors today, all silvers, yellows, whites, and golds, with a couple red parts meant to look like gemstones. It looks really cool. It does, yes. Heenan asks Tanay who he thinks the third man joining the Outsiders is, but Tanay doesn't know. Mysterio has a red, white, and blue color scheme, and a mask with an open back that reveals his shaved head. Heenan jokes that it looks like Demi Moore's hair. The film G.I. Jane came out in 1997, but looks to have started filming in April 1996, so she probably would have been going around with that haircut.
1: Yeah. It's funny, because a lot of times we joke about how they have very dated references, or references don't necessarily hold up, We have to explain them. Mm -hmm. That one probably needs less explanation, given the whole Will Smith situation that happened at the Oscars. That's true. (laughs) So it's one of the very cases where, by sheer accident... The reference came back around to notoriety, so That's true, people yeah. actually get it.
0: Well, and it's a rare case of, like, Heedon was actually referencing a current event at that time, That's rather true, than yeah. something that was happening, like, 20 years prior.
1: Yeah, probably he didn't, like, make a reference to, like, Stripes or something with the shaped yeah. heads.
0: The two trade a variety of leg, back, and arm holds, with Mysterio earning a two-count after he slips free of Psychosis's bow and arrow hold. Tanay notes how well Replica Luchador masks sell in Mexico, which Eric Bischoff must have missed, given how he unmasked several of these guys. Yeah, right. Probably could have kept the company open with the mask money alone.
1: Uh, yeah, probably.
0: Psychosis and Mysterio acrobatically dodge around until Psychosis nails Mysterio with a spin wheel kick, and Mysterio ends up outside, where he thankfully tosses a chair aside just before Psychosis dives out onto him. Both of them would have landed on that chair had it still been there.
1: Yeah, it's very good timing, yeah.
0: Psychosis does still hit the railing head first. (laughs) And Mysterio might as well, so they understandably take a few moments to recover. Back in, Psychosis works Mysterio's neck with leg drops and a figure four necklock, and earns two counts with a leg drop and a massive clothesline. A rapid counter sequence ends with Mysterio on the apron, where Psychosis knocks him down, but Mysterio monkey-flips Psychosis into the ring post. Mysterio hits a Hurricane Rana to the floor, but appears to clonk his head on the ring post in the process. Mm-hmm. Back in, Mysterio gets two with a springboard Hurricane Rana and works Psychosis's leg with a variety of holds, earning another two with a drop kick. Psychosis uses the ropes and drops Mysterio on the outside railing and hits a Crazy Senton to the floor, but keeps having his holds broken for cheating. Mysterio hits some absolutely wild hurricane ranas, including a top rope rana from the apron to the floor that has Dusty actually warning him, Be careful, kid.
1: Yeah. To his credit, he does that really well. Yes. He rotates himself towards the ring apron rather than with his head down. Yeah. Like um Lita would famously do all the time and unfortunately one one time circle did not end well for her. That ah. I, I believe that's what she was doing. She in, she was injured off shooting a TV show, which is where you mm-hmm. came from.
0: Mysterio backflip springboard splash gets two, and he nails a variety of dropkicks and an acai moonsault, but Psychosis counters the springboard Hurricane Rana with a powerbomb for two. Psychosis goes for a top rope splash mountain powerbomb, but Mysterio counters in midair mm-hmm. with a Frankensteiner for the three count and the win. The timing on that finish. Yes. I, I love picturing them planning this match out, and one coming up with that idea at all and two being able to be sure that they could do it because they're just that good. Yes. <laughs> Thoughts on this one?
1: I thought this is a really strong, exciting match. It's one of those ones where some of the crowd knows Ray or at least they've seen him between his Nitro matches or maybe they saw the previous pay per view. But he's not someone they have a long history with. He doesn't cut a bunch of promos. He's got a couple. And Psychosis is really new here, at least to this audience, for the most part. So other than maybe the hardcore people that may have seen them ECW or know them through, as they would do back in the day, tape trading thing. No one does anymore, obviously. They're sort of a mystery to a lot of people. No pun intended with the name. (laughs) In this one instance, anyhow. So to their credit, they really draw them in with the moves. They tell a great story. Psychosis overpowering them and sort of essentially bullying them in a lot of ways works really well. One thing I've noticed, it is, and it's really not a marking it's a match, but just a general observation. For me, anyway, there's a weird visual when the larger luchadors, whether it's Psychosis or my man, Leparka, <laughs> who love doing dives, it's weird seeing a bigger guy diving on a smaller guy like that. I can see that. The Centon one works. That actually advantageous, because he's he's larger, he can throw his whole body at him like that and sort of yeah. squish him. But just generally, the visual of the guy diving at him and Ray catching him just always seemed It's different to how we're used to it. It's just a case of that's how they all work matches there. just
0: in Yeah. Match. It just happens that Ray is so much smaller than any of them that that can lead you to a little bit of dissonance mm-hmm. until you realize that, like, most of these guys, if you put them in a match against, you know, like a Diamond Dallas Page or somebody, are going to be visibly smaller.
2: Yeah. Now,
0: With the exception of La Parka, is- because, yeah.
1: We know La Parka is about the same size, but yeah, they fit. <laughs> we both went for that joke, yeah. For the most part, they do these really dangerous spots, whether it's the hurricane run to the outside or these ones on the outside, or even the Senton. They do them in ways that obviously are still hard to do. Not trying to devalue them, but little subtle ways that make them more safe.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Like you mentioned, pushing the chair away before the dive, or the way again, the way Ray rotated to the side in the hurricane run so he could just grab onto the ropes rather than rotating with his head down and risking talking enough or talking too tightly, you know, hurting himself. Or the way he's sent on, where he lands flush on Ray. So he really has very little body contact directly with his body, which would be where he'd injure himself. Mm-hmm. Another thing, I, this little thing I thought was notable was that, in that bit where they do the monkey flip toss spot, they do it to the, specifically in the corner where the elevated pole is for the next match. So it's a rare instance of that kind of thing being used. Especially because, if you see the timing of this, so that's for the next match, and then it's taken down. So it's not like the Fall Brawl shows where they'll change rings, and they'll make Royal to use the double rings, which they're all night. Right,
0: yeah,
2: yeah.
1: They they it like when they were planning out matches, match? They're like, oh, we're going on first? Hey, that pole's there. We can do something like that. They probably even called that in the moment.
0: <laughs> the other thing I really like about their various stunts in this one is I feel like they gave them all room to breathe.
1: Yes, exactly. That's the thing. Thank you.
0: I'm, I'm sure part of it was them needing a bit of recovery time after, you know, a long fall or something. But it just felt really good to be like, okay, there's a stunt that happens, but I get time to appreciate that the stunt happened, rather than the really hyperactive matches you get sometimes, especially as we go into the later 90s.
1: Yeah, like in those three teams or later... One to like the Young Dragons and uh, Three Count. Where due to the nature of being tag team matches or multi man matches, mm-hmm. they yeah, they lose no break spots for sure.
0: There can be mind blowing stunts in there, but you just don't get to appreciate them as much as you do in a match like this.
1: Exactly. That's a good point, yeah. They give each one a little emphasis and time a react and then be ready for the next one. It's absolutely it. Mm-hmm.
0: What a surprise. The cruiserweights are here and we have an amazing opening match.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: Mysterio and psychosis absolutely nailed this, getting the crowd supercharged with a high energy exciting contest filled to the brim with crazy stunts without ever losing the feeling of it being a good, intense fight. I appreciated that this was not just stunts; there's a good, solid story to it with early setups for later important counters. Mm-hmm. Cap it off with one of the most amazing ending spots I have ever seen, mm-hmm. and you have a real winner
1: absolutely. I was thinking about this and I realized that we've seen this match before but we saw it later. Yes. I was gonna see if you remember your thoughts on the World Wild Ninety Eight match.
0: I don't think I was as fond of it. Like I I didn't think it was a bad one, but Mm -hmm. I just remember feeling like that it was underwhelming for the two involved for me. Oh, okay. I think you liked it better than I did, but Yeah. I think you and I probably agree this one feels superior to that one.
1: I think so, yeah. Sort of an underlying idea here that whoever wins is going to challenge for the Cruiserweight title, which comes true, because Ray challenges for the Cruiserweight title on the very next Nitro. And he actually wins it. Okay. And as we've already covered in the show, he would defend it at Hogwild against Ultimo Dragon, which I remember also being a really good match.
0: Yes, that was fun. We cut backstage where Mean Gene Okerlund is with Conan.
3: I cannot believe it. Uh, we were just talking about that match. We just saw very quickly Conan is U.S. champ. Uh, describe for me what happened in that, in that last match. What was that final move? Well,
4: Psychosis there? brought him up for a top-rope Splash Mountain, and Rey Mysterio caught him in the air with a top-rope Frankensteiner.
3: All right, I know for a fact that last night you wrestled in Mexico. You've had a hard day of travel in uh, jetting to Los Angeles, then back here to uh, Florida. Tonight, I talked earlier on with the nature boy, Ric Flair. He seems to me to be very confident. I might even say, Conan, he is overconfident. This title is on the line. Flair wants it badly.
4: Well, maybe he's got reason to be overconfident. You know, he's done it all. He's won that world title 13 times. Nobody else has done that. But tonight I'm overly cautious because everywhere he goes, he has an entourage. I haven't been here long enough to form an alliance. I haven't been here long enough to be afforded that luxury. But I'll tell you something, Ric Flair. If your manager gets in the match, I'll cripple him. If one of the women get into the match, I'll clothesline him. If that football player gets into the match, I'll chop block him. But Ric Flair, I'm going back home with this U.S. title. All right, uh, I would say this man has uh, got his
3: act together after a long day of travel, Conan, with a title defense coming up here at the Bash of the Beach. Right now, let's get you back up to the ring for more action. I
0: thought this was generally a good promo, save for a bit of a weird wording calling himself overly cautious, and a bit where he openly talks about being willing to hit women. (laughs) Admittedly, it's in the context of the woman trying to interfere in his match, but still.
1: Yeah. I I I'm I'm torn on the idea that Gene Oakland asks him to explain the finish of the match because I get that he and you know, maybe it's not part of the actual script. He's just like they're both watching the go and he goes whoa, and he decides just to ask him. But It just oh. feels weird that you're asking like the other Hispanic guy explain the the last match. <laughs> I don't think he means it in any bad way, which is no. I think he's yeah.
0: I think he's just like I know Conan works in this style, so he'll probably know. Oh yeah, what what's going on there and. Splash Mountain is one of the moves that Conan uses, right? So correct, yeah, makes sense. I genuinely liked that. I, you know, I I love every time in promos that people talk about matches other than the one they're in. Oh yeah, yeah. And and that's it just seemed like a cute thing. Like, oh, you guys were both clearly watching. Gene was like interested in that move, and Conan was able to explain it. Okay, oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> I I also liked the bit of accidental foreshadowing we got. His line about how he has been along it to form an entourage because mm-hmm. obviously later in this very year he would join the dungeon of doom
0: right you could see that as a as a correction of what he saw as a mistake here yeah
1: yes and of course he joined a slightly more famous group uh like a year later as well yeah
0: i particularly like his uh his opening where he really builds up flair and acknowledges his legendary career mm-hmm. conan like flair gets it if your opponent looks better you look better
1: this is the most flair conan build-up that I saw watching all the Nitros, so it's could we get something if it's weird that it's in a backstage promo on the show itself and not any time before that.
0: Yeah, at least you got something, right? Yeah,
1: That's true, yeah. Timing, timing aside, I'm glad to get something.
0: Our second match is Big Bubba with Jimmy Hart versus John Tenta in a Carson City Silver Dollar match. The referee for this one is Randy Anderson, and Mike Tenet has left the commentary team now.
1: Yeah, so this takes a little explaining, especially when, as you'll get into how uh, John Tenta looks in this. (laughs) Yes. Tenta was brought in as part of Hulk Hogan coming in and getting all his friends hired and getting contracts. He came in and became the shark, as I believe he got foreshadowing on on the last pay-per-view episode. In the time between those shows, the plan to destroy Hulkamania has failed in very spectacular fashion, as we'll cover when we get to cover more of those shows, especially Uncensored 96. So that has led to Tenta being kicked out of the group. Even though, as people like to note, he spent a lot of time and money getting his Clemson tiger tattoo on his arm chained to that of a shark, because he's the shark, and he didn't want a tiger on it.
0: He was an absolutely dedicated dude. Yeah. <laughs> and they rewarded him with, a, with approximately one year or less in this role.
1: Yeah. Less, yeah it's definitely. It's less than a year for sure. It's part of that he beat up, and Big Bubba would decide to just cut off chunks of his hair for some reason. I guess sharks or former sharks are very sensitive about how much hair they have. <laughs> Over subsequent weeks and shows, he would cut off parts of his beard, and at one point he cut off all his hair on one side of his head. I think it's his. I want to say it's the right side, but might be the left side. It doesn't really matter. And they even at this point on a previous Nitro, they attacked him and cut off the rest of his beard on one side. So he has the balding head, full of hair on one side, but only on the one side. But right, pretty even down the middle. So credit where credit do Big Bubba is a very precise trimmer.
0: <laughs> yes, true.
1: And he has a mustache again on one side of his face.
0: Now, by this point, I think the facial hair has grown back in a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, but he's but he's left the hair the way it was.
1: Yes. But yeah, it's one thing that you really feel for the guy. Not even counting the tiger rat tattoo thing. You know, he presumably went through his daily life not wearing a toupee or a wig to cover this up. Right, yes. I really hope he didn't have any, like, major events. Like, he didn't, like, go to a friend's wedding or, like, daughter's graduation or anything.
0: Well, I mean, you got a picture. I mean, the the dude's going from city to city for the shows. He's probably taking at least a few flights. True, Ima- yeah. Imagine being on an airplane and this massive dude sits down next to you with that haircut. Yes. It's <laughs> like...
1: Do I say anything?
0: There's a story there, but I'm not going to ask, because I want to live. <laughs> exactly.
1: So as the final part of this build, he would be attacked on Nitro, which is where they did the last bit of shaving on him, with a bag of silver dollars, which I believe is a callback directly or indirectly to when Big Bubba was, well, Big Bubba back in the NWA uh, JCP, or we yeah. covered him back in, I was the 86, is it the, that match? He's there with Cornette. He famously doesn't right, yes. So yeah, I'm pretty sure it's a six. I guess that must be like a game of these regional wrestling things that, like, if you're a territory guy and like you, you lived in like area, you a national wrestling. Like, you know, like in the pre-eighties, like maybe that's the thing they did all the time, like the silver dollar beatdown thing. It comes off as really as really weird and dated, still enjoyable at least, but a very specifically like territorially dated thing on this show and on television, like. Oh, a Carson City Silver Dollar match. Of course, one of those. <laughs> Everyone knows what that is.
0: So, speaking of a Carson City Silver Dollar match, in that match, a sock full of silver dollars is suspended above one of the ring posts by a very tall steel pole that looks considerably thinner than it would be necessary to be for either of these massive guys to climb. Yes. I really would not want to be sitting in the front row when John Tento or Big Bubba got to the top of that pole and it snapped like a twig.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes.
0: Bubba is out first, accompanied by Hart. Sadly, Hart does not have a big Bubba jacket.
1: Oh yeah, it's true, he doesn't.
0: He does have a great one with his own face on it, though.
1: Oh, true, yeah.
0: Heenum wonders how Tenta's going to get up that pole, and Dusty and Tony agree. Tenta's out next, and as you noted, he has half the hair on his head shaved off due to the earlier matches against Bubba. Notably, during entrances, the wrestlers' names are all accompanied by shark fin animation. Oh yeah. I'm I'm sad they didn't vary it up and give only Tenta the shark.
1: Yeah. Or only give him not the shark.
0: That's true, yeah. He's the only one that's explicitly not a shark now.
1: That's true, yeah. There's no question about whether or not he is a shark at this
0: point. Yeah, Bubba might be a secret shark we don't know.
1: That's true, yeah.
0: What kind of shark would Bubba be?
1: Um, I oh, wasn't there, there I think isn't there like a bull shark? That'd that be, I uh, yeah, I yeah. believe that would that would be appropriate.
0: Yeah, probably, yeah.
1: And obviously Tenta was a tiger shark as established.
0: Yes. Tenta chases Bubba around the ring until Anderson manages to get Bubba to come back in. Tenta wins early brawls as Heenan notes that Bubba should just distract Tenta so Hart can climb up and get the sock. Prophetic. Yeah. They trade off going for the pole and throwing each other down, including poor Bubba getting crotched twice, once off camera. Bubba finally gets a leather belt, chokes Tenta, and tapes one of Tenta's arms to the ropes. Bubba cuts Tenta's hair with some scissors to taunt him, but Tenta slugs him in the crotch because Bubba was too stupid to tape up both arms.
1: Which Heenan noted. (laughs)
0: Yes. Then uses the scissors to cut himself loose, and cuts one of the straps securing the pole. He realizes he's not going to climb it, so he's trying to cut it loose so he can get get the sock that way. Yes. Bubba interrupts and beats up Tenta, nailing a spine buster, and Hart nervously climbs the pole for Bubba. Hart gets the sock, but... Tenta recovers and power slams Bubba and takes the sock from a surprised heart, shoving him so he comedically spins around the pole and slides to the floor. Tenta nails Bubba in the jaw with a sock full of silver dollars for the three count and the win. Tenta spills the silver dollars out onto Bubba and places two of the coins on his eyes. I was not expecting to get references to ancient burial practices on a wrestling show, but hey. Worth noting, this is often associated with the myth of the Ferryman of the Dead in Greek mythology— But apparently there's little actual evidence that this was a Greek practice. Instead, they tended to use a coin in the mouth of the dead. Thoughts on this one?
1: I thought this was a pretty fun match. It's a very simple, old-school format. As I noted, this really does feel like something we would have seen in the DCP era,
0: for sure. Yes, absolutely, yeah.
1: So the thing with this match is you have to know what you're going to get. If you're looking for lots of move variety, like holds... Looking for like cool dives or good running attacks, you know, like misdirection stuff. Don't don't watch this match. If you want to see two people that are very large, but to their credit, very agile and have relatively quite strong stamina, because you know, they're they're throwing themselves around. Mm-hmm. They do it in bursts, which is, like, they do a more controlled manner. though do a big move and rest, or maybe two maybe moves of rest. Whereas obviously, brain psychosis could jog around the ring in the same amount of time and not be out of breath at all. Right. Yeah. To the credit, they also use this as the big send off to the storyline, as silly as again a match where you're climbing a pole to get a sock full of silver dollars to punch somebody with, or whack him with like a you know like a flapjack. This is still pay payoff to a multi-week, almost multi-month storyline, and they give it a proper ending. They don't you know half-heartedly have a non-finish or anything. Right. Yeah. It's very clear this is the end of this this thing. There's definitely some repetition here. I mean, both men have a spot where they try to climb up to the pole and they both get back suplex out of the exact same corner. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, there's only one pole and one corner, so it just makes that spot seem more redundant with literally the same location. I think the second guy would at least know that's coming. <laughs> but, you know. But yeah, I mean, for what it is, it's like it's quite good. And it's an interesting case of how you can really do a wrestling show like. You know, like a Shakespearean play, just weird to, again, describe a Carson City server-dollar match with, but where, you know, there's, there's something for everybody. It's all different in its variety.
0: Right. Yeah, I thought this was a perfectly good big man match. Ray Trailer works really well with other big dudes, as we've seen with Vader. Mm-hmm. And Tenta is more than capable of holding up his end of things. The hits feel big, and the slams feel powerful. And there's not really any lengthy pauses. Like you said, there's a rhythm to the match, but... It never feels like they're stalling or or, uh, ever particularly winded.
1: They don't go like a big, long, like, chin lock for a tooth no,
0: no, catch your breath or anything, yeah. I do wish they spent a little less time with the two trading attempts to climb the pole, as you noted, since it was patently obvious neither was going to actually get up there. Yeah. But I do really like the twist of Tenta trying to cut the pole straps instead, Mm -hmm. and Hart ended up climbing instead of Bubba. Good storytelling overall, and this was a fun watch.
1: Yeah, like I would say, it's just a case of three guys, including Hart and Boom whoever helped produce the match, outside of that. You know, they know, look, here here's the guys we have, we know what they can do, and they're experienced enough to get the rhythm and down, they they know their strengths and weaknesses, they know mm-hmm. how to play to the crowd the right way. It's not one of those matches where you look back like we are now in general and you go, Wow, this is a great match you gotta see again, like you know, we would say about the previous match. But at the same time it it, it doesn't Really detract from the value, like, appeal no. of the show, because it's it's one of these matches that's done as well as it's ever going to be with these people because of their experience. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's genuinely entertaining. Like it, yeah. they put on quite a nice show, and like you said, it, it feels like a strange a concept as this match is. It does genuinely feel like a good, solid end to a feud. They don't cheap out on it.
1: Absolutely. Surprisingly, neither one of these men is actually on the card for Hog Wild. Mm-hmm. Bubba is the closest one to being involved. It is funny, too, because we think of him as, uh, especially later with his sort of biker-related gimmickry, but yet he's not involved in the one biker angle on the show. That's true, yeah. I guess if he was a face, he could have like, been like, working with Medusa, maybe. That would have worked, but obviously he's playing heel. Yeah. So he does make it onto the show technically in the sense that he manages the, the Dungeon of Doom alongside Jimmy Hart for a uh, match on the Saturday Night Taping. Right. Which is more than, unfortunately, more than Tenta does. So,
0: is that. We cut back to the commentators and Tony now has what looks like a Hawaiian lei on his tux. I genuinely have forgotten that until I reread my notes. Yeah. <laughs> sure, that all fits together. Yeah. Tony mixes up his words a little, noting how we have to focus on the match at hand but we can't help forgetting what's going on here tonight. What? <laughs> Dusty says butterflies are taking over and he wants to get it over with. Heenan says he's asked everyone who the third man is and no one knows. Tony says by the end of the night, everything may change. He's not wrong.
1: <laughs> yeah. It is weird to make such a strong statement. Like, it, that sounds like it's an affirmative statement, but then qualify it, though? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. By the end of this show, something might happen. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Good no.
0: We cut backstage, where Gene is with Sting, Luger, and Savage. Everyone is wearing Sting-style face paint in their own outfit colors. Mm -hmm. Luger's black and white, Sting's black, yellow, and green, and Macho's is yellow and purple. I love when teams do that kind of thing.
1: I know. Me too.
3: Again, gentlemen, I thank you very much. It is very tense back here in the locker room area coming up tonight. A match that uh, many have labeled as a hostile takeover match. These outsiders are going to have a third man joining them. They're going to be facing the Macho Man, Randy Savage, former tag team champions. They've held numerous titles. Of course, the current reigning uh, WCW world television champ, the total package Lex Luger Sting. Guys, I don't think I've addressed this. I'm assuming everybody is in the building right now, Macho. And uh, who do you think their third
4: man is going to be? You know what? I don't care. I know it's going to be somebody. So that's really all that matters to me because he's going to get hurt
5: just like those other guys are going to get hurt.
4: This is equal opportunity, equal war type
5: situation. We're going to take him out, are we not?
3: Lex Luger, it's oh going to be very, very difficult to prepare when you don't know who this third man is.
4: That's very true, Gene, but we are prepared. You know, we've waited a long time for this. They've made a lot of noise, haven't they? A lot of loud noise. They've come in and talking trash. The WCW, what's well, an honor and privilege to be chosen for this team? I speak on behalf of all of us. And we will represent it well. We will represent it to the best of our abilities. And you know what, guys? What is it?
5: You know it? what point needs to be made here? Make the point, what is You've it?
4: Thrown announcers through stages. You've talked real loud, but now actions speak louder than words. Isn't that right, oh, Stinger? Yeah. You know what the unknown does mean, Gene? The unknown gives me a real dry mouth. The unknown Makes me a nervous wreck. The unknown puts chills right up and down my stomach. I like that. That's good. The unknown gives me goosebumps all over my body. And you know something? It does the same thing to the Macho Man. It does the same thing to the Total Package. We are a team, and we are pumped and ready. We're up for this one. You guys better do do it. Let's just go do it. Thank you very much. much We are the Total Package. Lex
3: Luger, Sting, and the Macho Man, those three men collectively, tonight, to represent World Championship Wrestling in this gigantic hostile takeover match, I can never recall a match of this magnitude. It is big. Let's get back to
0: the ring. Excellent, very fun promo by these guys. A neat mix of their traditional styles that still acknowledges that this match is different. They kind of each get responsibilities here. Savage gets to charge up the listener. Luger gets to go over the plot so far and remind everyone why this is happening, and Sting is set to building up a sense of danger. I think Sting in particular does a great job here, managing to talk about his nerves and worry about the situation while still feeling like Sting. Yeah, he can look charged up and ready to go, even while he openly admits not knowing who he's facing is nerve wracking. That's true. Yeah, I love this. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's definitely. Like I say it's a promo with three parts. Savage is. His usual fun, crazy self, as we got to see the two weird versions of from the Bachelor '95 actual promo he did, which was insane, and the slightly more sedate and cut down one we saw in the Baywatch episode. <laughs> yes, That's good to see more of that. His intensity just really helps uh, a situation like this. To his credit, Luger does try really hard with this one. There's a bit where he he doesn't really mess his words up, um, like I do all the time, obviously, but he um. Kind of stumbles a little bit, and you can see Sting like put his hand on his shoulder, telling him that it's, it's, you know, it's okay, just relax. Yeah, but a nice little thing because it shows their friendship as well, which probably know still goes on today. So that's really nice to see. And
0: I and I think there's a bit where um, he seems to have maybe not entirely blanked, but needs to think for a moment on the next part of his line. So he he says, "You know what point needs to be made," and then he pauses for a second, and says, "You know what really needs to be said," or something something yeah. along that line. So he he does a good job of giving himself the time he needs. To go on to the next bit. Mm-hmm.
1: Sting's part, as you said, was really good as well. He's only hampered a little bit by the fact that Luger's scenes to give would be the closing line about how actors speak louder than words, and then it cuts mm-hmm. the sting with more words.
0: <laughs> That's true.
1: It's, it's just a. I don't know. If maybe that was something Luger was supposed to say later, and he you know he just sort of jumped ahead. Which is things people do. It's not a big deal. It
0: could be possible, or I mean, it, you can think of it as you know Sting is referring to the actions of getting goosebumps and butterflies in his stomach.
1: Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> and that is like that. that a drawback because, like I said, you get at the intense savage, you get the the more controlled. Here's what we're gonna do during the Luger, and then Sting has sort of a nice middle ground where he. He's really in touch with his emotions and discomfort and the issues that Savage is dealing with as well. Mm-hmm. But he's not so out of control that he has to like, shout or yell or you know gesticulate wildly. So he's a good balancing point between all three. Because if you just had Savage, you'd be like, well, it's a fun, memorable, crazy Savage promo, but maybe you don't get out the content you want.
0: Right. It doesn't make it feel different. Yeah. Right. Sting is the part that makes it feel different. Right.
1: Like, if you got Luger, you, again, would have gotten the point across, but maybe felt it would be a little flat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is a good balance for that, for sure.
0: Yeah. Our third match is Diamond Dallas Page versus Hacksaw Jim Duggan in a taped-fist Lord of the Ring match for Page's Lord of the Ring ring. Referee for this one is Nick Patrick.
1: So, back on, an, again, a previous episode of the show, they had a big Battle Bowl tournament, which was um, something. That was ultimately won by DDP, the winner getting the Lord of the Ring and a title shot. They would very easily get the title shot to Luger, who, as a brief reminder, was in the opening match in which all four men lost via double countout. So, of course, he gets the title shot, because reasons.
0: Yeah, because DDP did actually get thrown out of the ring, yes. but no one noticed, yeah.
1: Right. No, so there's, there's a reason why DDP doesn't get it. It's always bugged, bugged me, as you can tell. That Luker gets it based on absolutely nothing. Anyway, but without the title shot, it's still something for DDP to use mm-hmm. because he has a status symbol now. He has a ring. As part of the story, DDP would find out that Duggan was getting a match for his one ring. He would declare it a, quote, a conspiracy. Meanwhile, Black Sage Silver Chris Jericho was getting some ideas for later. <laughs> the final bit of buildup is a very strange one. The he would come out and say he's he's very upset, and his ring was stolen. He'd interrupt, he'd interrupt the announcers and the uh, Gene Oakland who's doing a promo, and Oakland would be really annoyed and dismissive, like, you know, why are you buying this ring? Who cares? I don't know do where it is. Then they'd cut to a couple times throughout the show where he'd be somewhere yelling at someone else about the ring. We'd later have a promo where Doug in the backstage, talk, again talking to Gene Oakland would say, oh yeah, I just found this ring on the ground somewhere. <laughs> Paige would, of course, show up having watch the, the monitors in the back, Duggan would say he didn't even, doesn't even want the ring, which is weird that he's in a match for it, so he would drop it, and as soon as DDP got back up with the ring, he would hit him in the face. <laughs> as a reminder, Hacksaw Jim Duggan is the face in this match, and not the heel.
0: So DDP is Gollum, and uh, Hacksaw Jim Duggan is Bilbo Baggins?
1: Yes. <laughs> That's definitely not the way we booked him. when we did the WCW with Lord of the Rings one, for
0: sure. No, 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 definitely not. But That's not
1: the way we were going with that one. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's just bizarre way to do the story. Yeah. Duggan legit steals his ring, and then goes, well, I don't even want the ring, and then then beats him up after he gives yeah. it back.
0: It's yeah, like, the face legitimately is a thief yes. who uses his thievery to get in the cheap shot on the heel.
1: Mm-hmm. We haven't reached the infamous Shades of Grey promo, that I believe Vince McMahon would give on Raw, like, which I think is 97, 99 games. I believe
0: so, yeah, yeah.
1: But, I mean, clearly there's some of that with old-school faces like Duggan, who just does, quite frankly, cowardly and mean things to people, who are also cowardly and mean, so I guess that makes it all right. Mm-hmm. As for being a tape fist match, it's not really built up that much in story, other than, basically, they gave Duggan the match he wanted, and he won a tape fist match.
0: Paige is out first to his late 90s theme as we get Crab Cam. Oh, yeah. (laughs) To go along with the beach set, they actually have a little mobile camera rolling around on the sand with crab claws attached to it. I don't know who came up with that ridiculous idea, but I hope they got a huge raise.
1: (laughs) Yes, absolutely.
0: (laughs) It's absolutely wonderful. It's amazing. Tony talks of the main event and says WCW is a team. And Heenan gets himself in trouble by saying it's too early for him to say that, then rapidly backpedals. (laughs) Duggan is out next with his usual 2 by 4 and American flag, and Dusty tries to call this show WCW's Independence Day. Okay, number one, it's not Great American Bash.
1: Yeah, you just had that show.
0: And number two, the Outsiders don't currently have power over WCW, so it's more like, I don't know, the War of
1: 1812? Yeah, it's pretty accurate, I'd say, yeah.
0: WCW is trying to stop an outside invading force, not rebelling against the current ruling power.
1: Yeah, this is more um, Red Dawn than anything.
0: Tony explains that a taped fist match is a normal wrestling match just with taped fists, but there must be a winner, so I think that means this is no DQ?
1: Yeah, I I have questions on that I'll cover after the match.
0: Duggan easily overpowers Paige but Paige rakes his eyes, pulls him into the ring post, and tapes his feet around it, stomping the helpless Duggan as Patrick tries to free Duggan's legs. Paige pulls the tape off of Duggan's fists, too. Once Duggan's free, a Paige headbutt goes worse for Paige than for Duggan, and Duggan beats Paige up inside and outside the ring, and suplexes him back in. Paige holds the ropes to stop a suplex and get a brief advantage, but Duggan hits the ropes when he goes up top, and Paige crotches himself. Duggan rams Page to the turnbuckles in sequence and clotheslines him out to the floor, beating him up outside. But as Duggan rolls Page in and follows, Page kicks the ropes into his crotch and hits the diamond cutter for the three count and the win. Page celebrates as Duggan recovers rather too rapidly for the diamond cutter. Yes,
1: yes
2: he does.
0: He at least doesn't kick out right after the three, and he does look dazed. But still, you should be selling on the map for at least 10 or 20 seconds, Duggan, not immediately sitting up when Page lets go.
1: Yeah, merely taping her fist up
0: as yeah. well. Duggan crawls to a roll of tape in the corner, tapes up his fist, and decks Paige. As Duggan leaves, Patrick brings the ring over to Paige, who sells being knocked completely loopy by that. You know, like Duggan should have done for him.
1: Yeah. I mean, cut, cut to a year later when Rennie Savage sells the diamond cutter like death. Yeah. He's down for like a minute and a half. Like, maybe he, he might be overselling it, but you know, it really emphasizes the move.
0: Yeah. Thoughts on this one?
1: I don't think this isn't a bad match. There's definitely a case of DDP, as we like to say, doing his best in the situation.
6: Mm-hmm. But
1: that's not to say Duggan can't wrestle, because obviously he can. He's got, at this point, he's been wrestling for almost 20, I don't know, probably around 20 years? I don't know exactly when he started, but 15-20 years is a pretty solid bet. He's wrestling since the 80s. So I think he not, doesn't know what to do, but he clearly just didn't want to do much more than certain things. You know, he'd do a suplex or two, but he wouldn't work tactical style. He'd just like to brawl and yell ho and hit you with the you know, his fist wrapped in tape and that 2x4, but he has the 2x4 still. Mm-hmm. So it's a case of someone who understandably is a control freak with matches, but generally gets good results, so I don't complain about it, and a guy who basically does three things and uh, does them all pretty well, at least. I think they get about everything they could out of this match. You have in-the-ring brawling, you have out-of-the-ring brawling, you have in with the tape, and then the tape being removed from Nuggan, so he has... Is he's afraid of the taped fist, so he takes the tape, tape off. Yeah, yeah. It's still not clear how much impact the tape has on his fist and why. Because the question you have to have in a match like this is why don't you just immediately hit him with the tape fist and win?
0: Yeah. At, at least the tape fist has been built up at this point as increasing the power of his punches somehow. So, oh, you yeah. know, it it makes sense why Paige goes to remove it.
1: Yeah. In universe, it's explained. Mm-hmm. But if you're like, if you are someone watching for the casual viewership. go, wait, why is he knock him out because his tape's on his fist? (laughs) Yeah, it's it's just not explained very well. I do think, like I said, they think they did what they could with the time they had. There's nothing really amazing in this match, but it's perfectly functional. I think they covered all the angles they could as far as the match work itself, and I'm glad the right man won here, even if, as we noted, Duggan did not sell a diamond cutter very well and immediately needs to get his heat back, which is a little disappointing, but also not surprising.
0: Yeah, Duggan's weird refusal to sell the diamond cutter as a big hit at the end aside, I found the actual match quite fun. As usual, we get a lot of story beats in a match with Paige, with him working a lot of tricks and big moments in to make this more than just punching and slams. Some of the spot ideas, most notably a wibbly-wobbly rope punches spot, were a little silly, and this probably would have been a little better if they let some of the spots breathe a bit more. But the actual content is quite fun, and this is far and away the best Duggan match I have seen. Mm-hmm. Diamond Dallas Page does it again.
1: <laughs> yes. On that note, I have questions about the rules of a tape fist match. Yes. In lucha, so in lucha libre, if someone takes off a, an opponent's mask, and it's not a you know it's not a match where you're fighting to demask them, it's an automatic disqualification. Like it's a rule you cannot break. There, the mask is such a major thing. So. In that logic, does that mean that DDP should have been disqualified for moving the tape in a tape fist match?
0: I don't. I don't think. So. I think it would be more of a um, the analog would be more like a what's a, a chairs match hmm. or a ladder match where it's declaring this weapon is legal for this match, hmm. not declaring you have to wear this for this match. That would be if it were like you know pillows on your fist match, then I could see a disqualification for removing the pillows.
1: Oh, okay. Should Duggan then be disqualified because he's wrestling a tape fist match? Without taped fists.
0: (laughs) No, I think it's like if he got disarmed when he had a chair, you know, chairs match.
1: Now, to be fair, my solution here is... Simply put in a standing 10 count to allow him to put his tape back on. If he doesn't put it back on in time, then he's
0: not following well, the rules. And and that, yeah, I mean, we do know that Duggan's quite fast at getting the tape on in some respect, at least. So, True, yeah. You know, he could probably do pretty well. You, you could act. I could actually see, especially <laughs> DDP making that a plot point in a match like, hey, you can, you can put your tape on really fast during the match, right? Why don't we do that?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely.
0: Maybe if they had another minute, he would have added, added that too to the binder.
1: Yes, Absolutely. Like many people in the show, DP does also not have a match, unfortunately, on Ho- the Hog Wild show, mm-hmm. although he would work a Saturday Night match on that same taping. Unfortunately, he doesn't make the main show. Fortunately, he does win, but unfortunately, he wins by beating Renegade. So, I mean, I'm glad he beat Renegade, but also he had to fight Renegade again.
0: <laughs> uh, well, it was probably one of Renegade's best matches, so.
1: All, like, 100 people that watched Saturday Night maybe saw it. <laughs>
0: We cut backstage where Mean Gene is with Jimmy Hart, the Giant, and the Taskmaster Kevin Sullivan.
3: Gentlemen, please come on in. Jimmy Hart, you little twerp. The seven foot four inch, four hundred and seventy-one pound heavyweight champion of the world, representing World Championship, wrestling the giant. Kevin Sullivan. Tonight, Art Anderson, Chris Benoit, two out of the four horsemen. And considering, well, considering you, Mr. Sullivan, no disrespect. Things don't look real good for you personally. I don't think they're going to let this guy even get in the ring. They're going to double team you if they get a shot.
4: They're going to double team me. They can bring all four horsemen out. Let me tell you something. This is home court advantage, and there's something burning in my gut. You think I'm the weak link? Well, ask the giant, and he'll tell you exactly what I am.
3: Giant, uh, be honest with us. Do you consider the taskmaster the weak link of the Dungeon of Doom?
5: I never and once in my life would ever consider the Taskmaster as a weakling. He is the backbone of the Dungeon of Doom. He is the one that brought the giant to WCW to reclaim my birthright and put an end to all that Hulkamania stuff. And you talk about the Horsemen, the Elite, this, that, and the other. They're not the Elite. I am the World Heavyweight Champion. I always will be. I am the Elite. You come after the Taskmaster. You come after Kevin Sullivan in his hometown, his home court. (laughs) Looks like we're going to have some horse stew later.
3: (laughs) All right. uh, They are thoroughbreds. Make no mistake about that, Jimmy Hart.
4: The best of the horsemen go against the best of the dungeon. We'll see who wins.
3: (laughs) Can you you do me a favor? I don't want to offend you, but would you brush your teeth? uh, Stop it with me. All right, ladies and gentlemen, the bash at the beach, absolutely electrifying.
0: Good solid work by Giant and Sullivan here, I thought, in an almost babyface promo?
2: Yeah. It's
0: a really interesting atmosphere that's kind of starting to edge towards how Giant will be seen between now and Hogwild. Yes. Sullivan comes off as willing to fight despite possible disadvantage, and Giant quite nicely defends him against accusations of being a weak link. They're both still heels, so they do come off a little disingenuous in all of this, of course, which holds it back from being a full face promo. Right. But... It's still a neat tone. I also really like the giant's response to the horsemen being called elite. Uh, No, I'm the world champ, and they aren't champs at all, so I'm the elite. <laughs> also notable that bit where giant calls Sullivan the backbone of the dungeon, which Sullivan decides means he needs to stand at attention and salute for some reason. What, what do you think a backbone is, Kevin? <laughs> <laughs> still good promo.
1: Um, yeah, it's a fairly for me. It's it's fine. It's fairly really nothing promo as a whole. It basically just gets the storyline across. Hey, you know the horsemen think you yeah, know Sylvan's a weak link. Well, you know he's stronger than, than anybody. Blah blah blah. And then really just building up that he's it kind of, at this point he's the elite because he's the champion. As a modern wrestling fan, it's weird hearing the word elite thrown so <laughs> yeah, <that's> many times. We <laughs> have to sort of give it context.
0: The other thing I do like about this one, and we'll see this when we get to the actual match, but this is a, this is a good case of the promo actually foreshadowing the match that gene is entirely right in his analysis of what the horsemen are going to do and sullivan is entirely right that he's going to be able to take it you don't often get the promo so directly related to the plot of the actual match like that Mm -hmm. you get a bit of that with conan as well where he has declared his intention to physically oppose attempts to interfere so i think on this show there's there's a there's a strong feeling of the the promo is getting tied a little more directly to the match than you sometimes get, which is cool. Yeah, I can see that. Jane throws to Lee Marshall, who is on the beach set Boardwalk with Chris Benoit in his usual duds, and Arn Anderson in the amazing combination of wrestling tights, light blue WCW t-shirt, and dad glasses.
4: <laughs> yes. Thank you very much, Mean Gene, standing here with two of the four horsemen, the Canadian Crippler, Chris Benoit, the Enforcer, Arn Anderson, and it boils down simply to this, Arn. If you can beat either the Taskmaster or the Giant, one of the four horsemen gets a shot at the Heavyweight Championship of the World on TNT Monday Nitro.
7: Before I get to Sullivan and the Giants, I want to talk about the Outsiders briefly. Yeah, Eric Bischoff stood up to you and you shoved him through a table big deal. Tonight I think you're gonna find a little rougher road with Sting, Luger, and Savage. Now I'm no big fan of theirs, but I just want you to understand whoever you are, what kind of fight you're in, and maybe if you survive it, you can jump on the horseman. But the fact is, first things first, Sullivan, we're looking at this thing as a vehicle to get the world title back where it belongs. Now I've been walking these streets of Daytona Beach for a couple of days and all I'm hearing is, boy, what a beating Kevin Sullivan's gonna give you. He stuck his hand out to you in friendship and drew back a nub. Well that's the way of the world. The world the four horsemen live in. A giant we chop you down in half. You're only 3'6".
4: I gotta think Chris Benoit that you've got some unfinished unsettled business with the Taskmaster Kevin Sullivan. Silent
5: but violent Kevin Sullivan giant The Horsemen have tolerated the Dungeon of Doom far too long. Tonight, we're going to finish off what you started. Sullivan, I'm going to leave you for dead. Giant, you've given us but another opportunity for the Horsemen to reign supreme.
4: In the WCW. Coming up, tag team action, the Giant and the Taskmaster, Benoit and Anderson. You talk about some tag team action, you're not going to believe what's coming up.
6: In fact, let's get to the ring.
0: Lee gives us a let's get to the ring there. Ah, so close. So close. It. As for this promo, Anderson does some amazing work with comments on the Outsiders that help build them up as a mega threat by showing that even WCW's big time heels hate them. I love how openly dismissive he is of them throwing Bischoff through the table. He does a good quick coverage of the Horseman Dungeon story as well, and has the absolutely wonderful Immortal line. Giant, if we cut you in half, you're only (laughs) 3-6. Then Benoit gives his weird catchphrase that sounds like he's calling himself a fart.
1: (laughs) A little bit, yeah.
0: To be fair, he does perfectly acceptable promo work after that, though there's some weird long pauses in there that I think he meant for emphasis. But that honestly kind of make it sound like he forgot what he wanted to say at points.
1: Yeah, I can see that.
0: Overall, though, another really good promo segment tonight.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think if you really sort of focus on the Arn part more than the Benoit part, then it comes off a lot better. Because he has that current line. It is nice that he ties the overarching story of the show into this. Because mm-hmm. obviously, their focus is on winning this tag match to get a title shot. But they're also not wearing blinders, or I guess horse blinders in this case. <laughs> as far as the rest of what's going on in the company. So it's it's, a, it's nice little bits there when people reference something. It really shows how important it is. Mm-hmm. It's not like, oh, you know, I'm fine with the tagiles later. But I don't care what's going, with, you know, what's going on with you know the whole company being in some sort of theoretical peril. Whatever.
6: Yeah.
0: It's fine. Arden does an amazing job with, with that. From his perspective right now, these guys are, you know, they're trying to be an, another horseman-style group or something like that. So yes. he's like, big deal. You throw an announcer through the table. I mean we we do that kind of stuff. Exactly. I'm used to that. Yeah. <laughs> Call me when you do something exciting, son. <laughs> yeah, right. Our fourth match is the public enemy, Rocco Rock and Johnny Grunge versus the Nasty Boys, Brian Knobbs and Jerry Sags, in a four-man dog collar match. Oh joy, my favorite two tag teams in the universe.
1: And your favorite format of match?
0: Yeah. Referee for this one is Jimmy Jett, though Randy Eller comes out to help hook the collars on.
1: Here we have two teams that love fighting, and as just as they love plunder. I mean, we're expecting a narrative here, like some sort of story <laughs> of love and betrayal and, you know, innocence lost or something. They don't really build up the whole, oh, we gotta have this, these dog collars tied together thing. So it's a gimmick match that seems to exist just because. Which, I mean, it's the Nasty Boys, so I'm not terribly surprised.
0: The public enemy barely even bothered to do their out-of-sync hand-waving during their entrance.
1: You complain when they're not in sync and now they're not doing it. They're, they're doing what you want, Bob. They're not... no,
0: what, no, what I want is for them <laughs> to be in sync.
1: <laughs> Wait, I'm, just say- I'm just saying, if they don't do it, then you don't know whether they're in sync or not. Surrender's cat.
0: The commentators have an extremely detailed discussion about exactly what turns something from an object into plunder in Dusty's definition. Mm-hmm. The Nasty Boys enter next, and in one of the weirder competing crowd support demonstrations, a chunk of the crowd chants Nasty with knobs, and other parts of the crowd oppose it with out-of-sync waving.
1: Maybe it's just really hot in there, and they're trying to get the fanning effect going on. <laughs> they're not very good at it.
0: Yeah. Rock is hooked to Sags, and Grunge is hooked to Knobs. The Nasty choose the chains to send the enemy outside, and the teams brawl around the arena in WCW's absolutely awful split-screen view, in which two-thirds of the screen are taken up by Ocean Graphics and the show logo, and one-third by two tiny screens that each show one pair of the competitors so you can't follow a dang thing. Mm -hmm. Dusty nearly saves it by dubbing it the Double Trouble Bash at the Beach Bubble.
2: Yeah.
1: Also, you know that reminds me of the formatting? There was some games we could play when you'd play single console multiplayer, or like the split screen. And I can't remember which game it was, but one we would play specifically, where for the reason we were playing at three, because some, some wasn't, wasn't available, you'd have the evenly split up script screen on the top row. And then whoever third player got the whole bottom part of the screen, because it, it didn't like, split it evenly. It gave them the whole section that would have been two parts.
0: I think it was Borderlands.
1: It might have been. I just remember we're all wanting to be third player so we get the bigger screen.
0: Yeah. It's hard to follow this, but here's some highlights. Nobs uses an inflatable rubber shark as a weapon to Dusty's sheer delight. Sags uses a surfboard and Rock a life preserver. Rock climbs a lifeguard stand, but Sags pulls him down by the chain, but Rock hits a front flip kick anyway. Rock goes up again, and this time Sags pulls the whole darn thing down, trapping their chain underneath the stand, so Rock has to move it to free them. Sags pile drives Rock on the concrete. Back in the ring, Rock sets Sags on the table, but Sags pulls the chain to send him down onto it, and it doesn't break. No. Rock angrily shoves it away and nurses his aching back. Sags sets him on the table and tries a second rope, chain-wrapped elbow drop, but the table still doesn't break. No. Sags whips Rock to the ropes, but his foot catches on the chain, and he goes down hard. Nobs throws Grunge over the ropes, and holds his own chain taut for Sags to fling Rock into it for an improvised clothesline, and Sags gathers up his own chain, which came off Rock's collar, probably when it got caught in his foot, and hits Rock with it for the three-count and the win. Heenan dubs that the greatest Greco-Roman power match he's ever seen. <laughs> The public enemy attack the Nasty Boys after the match as they're trying to unhook. Eller comes back out to help unhook things, and Rock finally uses Sag's body to destroy their true enemy, the table, then drops an elbow from the apron onto him for good measure before they leave. <laughs> Thoughts on this one?
1: So look, yeah, these two teams can have a fun, chaotic match where they go around and fight, you go outside the ring, so the crowd a different view from, I suppose, everyone constantly fighting in the ring space. It gives the match a different feel in a lot of ways because they go onto the set and they get the props involved. They use a the rubber john Tenta, so that's great. <laughs> the, the problem...
0: That almost slipped by me, man.
1: <laughs> oh, good. I was, I was wondering about that one. I was worried. <laughs> that's actually kind of fun for a few minutes. Unfortunately, the match is more than that. And as noted, there's definitely some issue with the finish. I don't know if I've heard anything from any of the the four involved about, specifically what the finish is supposed to be. Presumably that bit where he's throwing off the top rope of the table would be the finish. Mm-hmm. I sure it felt like it. It's not clear if they had a fairly succinct match set up and then the table didn't cooperate, so they kind of improvised and then, you know, optimally improvised in situations like that. They don't always go well. And plus, to be fair, you're involving... Props, like a chain that's like 8 or 9 feet. It's a pretty lengthy chain. And multiple people doing things. So I'm not going to tell you that trying to come up with a new finish in a match like this is easy. Because obviously I've never been in an actual match before. Mm-hmm. So I feel for them in that case. Oh yeah, yeah.
0: That was tough.
1: Yeah. That said, the match, thanks in part to the Double Turbo bashes Beach Bubble, as <laughs> it, is, it is called... It's this, it's hard to follow. It's hard to focus on what's supposed to be important. There's weird bits where they're really far away, and it makes sense why they had the full split screen. But eventually, they fight near each other. So like, people walk out of one split screen briefly into the other, like partly, yeah. which is a weird visual. Like SAG goes just to the to the right, for instance, and almost seems to jump from one screen to the other just because the camera shots are so connected. It's same. They never actually fully leave. Like it actually looks like they jump from one screen to the other. <laughs> At least he got have fun with that. The cameraman could have done something with that. We know from the beginning, even without the double dog car stipulation, that Nasty Boy's public enemy match is not going to be our cup of tea. Obviously, they have a pretty dedicated fan base from the W audience, both before and after the show. But obviously, we are not part of that. Mm-hmm. And again, the formatting just doesn't really help them. The so Nasty Boy's in a fairly controlled brawl you can have some fun with that, like we had with, I believe it's the Max Payne-Cactus Jack one. Not my favorite match ever by any stretch of the imagination, but that had some adorable spots and stuff in it. So you can do stuff with that. Everything seemed to be working against them. The cameras, the chains, the uh, beach tower, and even the table especially. So, it's an uphill battle.
0: I, I may be about to surprise you here. We'll see. Okay. Considering I don't much care for the teams in this match, I enjoyed this one more than I expected. They use novel weapons, the inflatable shark being a ludicrous highlight, Yeah. and they work in some more creative spots with the lifeguard stand and tables, which helps. Some unnecessarily dangerous hits take away points, though, as does the horrid split screen. Mm. The failed table smashes looked like they absolutely hurt a ton. Oh, yeah. Like you, I think Rock going through the table from that first, like, pull off with the ropes was the intended finish, probably. Yeah. But when that didn't work, twice. Yeah. They did what feels like a pretty respectable improv with that chain clothesline. Yeah. So good work, if so. Honestly, like, if it weren't for the Double Trouble Bash of the Beach bubble making it so hard to follow, I could genuinely have said that I actually enjoyed this one. With that, it's harder to say that outright, but I can say I appreciate this a lot more than normal matches with these teams. Gotcha. I think they got much more creative than usual.
1: No, yeah. I'm glad this happened on the Bash of the Beat show and not a more generic show where they don't have that.
0: Right, yeah. Them having all the props to work with, I think, was a massive benefit to them.
1: It was like what we got on Spring Stampede, I want to say 97? The DDP?
0: Yeah, DDP Raven. That might have been 98. But yeah, yeah, I think um, you're right. Yeah, yeah, that was a good one for them, just using the set like really well. Yeah, yeah.
1: that's why I remember because they had a really good time using that. Then, like two matches later in the main event, Sting and uh, Savage go out there and uh, let less with that. Yeah,
0: they have less of a less creativity in the use of the props. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I, I've again if listen to these, you know, we're in general not big fans of the Nasty Boys. I think it's in personally. I'm sure they're nice fellows never actually met them. I've seen one of them, as mentioned, seen one of them briefly in passing at the Publix they used to shop at, so I think it's in that way. I know they've had matches that really played their style more. There's the famous one with uh, Harlem Heat, yes. where they fight the accession stand, and it's all, even with stuff having like, them slipping on ketchup mustard from, <laughs> you know, fighting session stand, because they weren't doing the split split screen and wandering around stuff as much, it made it a you to follow a chaotic fight in a weird environment. Mm-hmm. Both teams would appear at the Saturday Night Taping, again, at Sturgis, but not on the proper show itself. On plus side, both of them actually won their matches. Public Enemy beat Rough and Ready, while the Nasty Boys beat High Voltage, effectively.
0: Okay. Main Jean is backstage in a hallway guarded by several police officers. He says he's in front of the Outsiders' locker room, and he has security, and if the Outsiders have the unmitigated gall to attack him, he'll go right to a lawyer's office. I love love Mean Gene's random vocabulary.
2: (laughs) Yes. Mm -hmm.
0: I'd imagine he'd go to the lawyer's office after the hospital visit, most likely, though. Yeah, probably. Gene says he was hoping to interview the Outsiders about the third man. Notably, he claims the cops there are his security, not cops guarding the outsider's room. Remember that for later. Yes. Gene says the electricity is so thick you could cut it with a knife, which seems like a pretty bad idea considering metal is pretty conductive.
1: It's an interesting view of how elements work as well. What I really enjoyed about this segment, as brief as it was, was Oakland really... Again, he's really leaning into the, this is the most important show of our, of our lifetime and everything. He gets right on the verge of being very melodramatic about the whole thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, I, if it gone a little longer, they would have just almost gone into accidental parody, but it's, it's right on the edge.
0: Yeah. he He's doing a good job on this one of building up, like you said, the, the importance of this show. I, I appreciate that. Like, everyone, from the wrestlers to the commentary team to the backstage interviewers and, and all, are treating this as a little different.
1: hmm In a lot of ways, um, Okerlund, with his um, his mustache and his glasses and just his general real dramatic reading and delivery here, reminds me a lot of Gary Owens. Most notably, I remember him, obviously, he's the narrator in the second Dr. Five movie, He recaps the previous film. Oh, okay. <laughs> But he, that was the thing he would do a lot. They'd, you'd hire him for your movies or shows. you go, here's the thing that happened previously. It's very important you know this thing. He had this sort of, the this, this same kind of livery. If I can find a good clip, I'll post it to our Facebook page. But yeah, it just reminded me of him a lot in a fun way. I do have a question about security, though. <laughs> so if they're open security, and they're protecting to protect him against the Outsiders, why are they facing away from the door?
0: That's a good question. <laughs> right yeah
1: it's uh not very good security if they could just like, walk up it'd be funny if like they did like walk by and security's like looking ahead towards the camera and oakland doesn't see them the camera guy can't like give him a wave so he just hall like walks out across the hall like getting a like, water and they don't notice him at all
0: <laughs> yeah that's that's a good point yeah probably means that they are not in fact his security and they are the role that they're stated as in later in the show but um Maybe Okerlund's just delusional.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's very
0: possible. Our fifth match is Disco Inferno versus Dean Malenko for Malenko's WCW Cruiserweight Championship. Referee for this one is Randy Eller.
1: So first off, slight correction, he is THE Disco Inferno? Don't care. Okay, just saying. I, I don't care either, but just like, I like, point pointing that out because it's a weird thing to give him such a...
0: They're adding adding these to WCW all the time on this show, so I'm going to just assume they're deducting them from Disco Inferno.
1: Okay, fair enough. On Nitro, about two weeks out from this, there's a match between Dean Lenko, Cruiserweight Champion, and his apparently top contender, hard work Bobby Walker. (laughs) Nice. Disco decides to wander out towards ringside area with his supposed gold record. He also gets the number wrong couple of times saying how many records he sold to have a gold record
0: just as an aside by the way yeah so disco inferno has a gold record yeah yes he does have his own theme song but he doesn't sing on it he dances to it so like skilled dancers can have like dvds or things sure but a gold record is more of an actual musician thing right
1: uh generally speaking yes
0: so yeah that's <laughs> very strange
1: also the idea that they sold a million disco inferno cds is a uh, really want to check those receipts.
0: That's blatantly not the case unless Disco bought him himself. But I mean, I'll accept that as wrestling exaggeration, sure. But the fact that they apparently think that just because he is a gimmick that has something to do with music, that he would have a gold record is is bizarre.
1: Yeah. He's no Jeff Jarrett, obviously. Yeah. But yeah, so he wanders around and just causes a general distraction on how great he is while the match is going on a Brief River Walker almost wins, although, of course, you know, they really got to win the title. Malinka ultimately wins, but he's very annoyed at him. After the match, Gene Okren's there, because, of course, he is. Disco says that he's there because he thought the match was boring, and clearly everyone else did, so he just wanted to liven things up. wanted to brag about selling his million CDs? Uh, The champ responds to this insult by challenging to a match on pay-per-view. Okay. So it's a good lesson for you kids. Annoy someone and you'll get what you want.
0: Yeah. I I I would say that that lesson is undercut slightly by this match itself, but
1: (laughs) Well, he wanted the match. He didn't necessarily want the beating he gets in it.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) That's a different different, you know, expression about care for what you wish for.
0: There you go, yeah. Yes.
1: But he he gets both. One last bit of build up. Disco is fighting a different jobber, and it's not going his favor, going his favor because, you know, he's a heel. They would suddenly play Disco's theme again. Disco himself seems confused, and the guy in the ring definitely seems confused. A different guy in a, like, white Elvis jumpsuit comes down to the ring, start dancing around to the theme, and they lower a disco ball, like, in the middle of the ring during all this. The ref, of course, you know, goes to get this random guy out away from ringside. While that's going on, Disco takes the disco ball and smashes it over the guy's head, and wins the match. Okay. So, the Disco Inferno would have met by hitting a guy with a disco ball. That's a sentence I just said.
0: That's a more plausible weapon than some other ones we'll get on this show, so...
1: Right. It's true.
0: By the way, I'm now picturing Dean Malenko as the Wishmaster. Oh, okay. (laughs) Be careful what you wish they were thing.
1: Yeah, see that.
0: Disc goes out first, and as he enters, Tony falls deep into paranoia about the third man, noting that he could be anyone, anywhere, even in the stands, even among the people around the commentary team. (laughs) Disco calls for a microphone. He says everyone came to see him dance, and after he beats Mr. Personality and wins the title, he'll welcome everyone to his disco dance party. Malenko comes out to his JRPG Evil Imperial Army music and walks purposefully to the ring, getting in Disco's face. Malenko slaps Disco, throws him outside, and beats him up, then utterly dominates with a massive variety of moves, including two counts with a leg lariat, brain buster, leg bar, drop kick to the back of the head, and roll up, and wildly varied holds mostly targeted at the legs. Disco eventually manages to land some punches and get two with a front Russian leg sweep, having wasted a little time checking his hair. Tony notes that he spent less time checking it than usual. I love that there's an honest-to-goodness plot point in this about Disco still being a moron, just less so than usual.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: <laughs> Malenko just sends him to the turnbuckle and presumes beating him down and stretching joints that Disco did not know he had.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Heenan and Tony credit Disco with at least having perseverance. Disco barely escapes a kind of crucifix necklock by stretching out to touch the ropes with his toes. Dusty isn't quite sure that should have counted, but Eller gives it to him out of pity. Malenko earns two with a springboard leg drop. Disco earns two counts with a reverse neckbreaker, backbody drop, and swinging neckbreaker, but keeps wasting time before pins. Heenan says he just needs a manager, and Tony expects Heenan will offer his services. Malenko tries for the Texas Cloverleaf, but Disco rolls him up for two, and gets another two with a clothesline, but Malenko clotheslines the crap out of him. Mm-hmm. Disco dodges a dropkick and tries a backslide, but Malenko escapes, hits a double underhook powerbomb, and locks on the Texas Cloverleaf for the quick submission victory. Malenko accepts his belt and shouts to the camera that it represents the best of wrestling. It's not a dance. <laughs> Thoughts on this one?
1: Honestly, it's a decent match. I think a lot of that credit goes to Malenko, obviously. Arguably a generational talent that never quite got what he deserved because he just couldn't go to promo and... Didn't have those things you can't control, like his height, you know, mass and such. This is still the early days of cruiserweight wrestling, you know, as a big thing again. So it's less of the Lucha or Lucha adjacent style, like, you know, Malenko and a Lucha guy, for instance, or other people wrestling summer styles. So it's no matter how the actual match goes, it's not just personally not the one I like as much. That said, they do an interesting job, I think, again, really on Malenko's part of... Making the idea that Disco, for all his, his faults and silliness, could be a legit contender for a match yeah. like this and for a title. They really build up that, you know, he, he's getting beaten up, he's getting beaten up, but he's not giving up. And if he just, you know, just gets a chance maybe and really focuses, maybe he could actually pull this out. It's not, a, you know, a predetermined thing in storyline. Yeah. So it's a weird bit where they really try to make, at least in this one match, when it's in one instance, Disco, kind of a face... He's still ultimately not completely because he's, he's still, you know, the disco stuff and he's dancing and checking his hair. So he's, it's not like a face turn for him, but the match is laid out a lot more like he's a face fighting underneath like you get with like a Billy Kidman later on. It's an interesting sort of, kind of oddity, and it really speaks to how well people like Malinka can do is Malinka could almost make me care. <laughs> disco fights back and possibly might be able to win this match, even though. No, part of me ultimately really wants him to do that, but yeah, it, in the match story itself, it kind of does work.
0: I think they're I think they're doing it to show like he, this guy does have potential. Yeah, he's not there now, right? And the match demonstrates quite clearly that he's not there now, but it also demonstrates that if he does become a more serious character in the future, or at least be able to take a match seriously. He does have the talent and the perseverance to be able to potentially win. No, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. Which, which I think is, I think it's good for a character that is comedic. They're only going to be able to go so far if you keep them 100% comedic. Right. But if you can have the, the suggestion that if only they turn that off, they'd be able to go further, then at some point you can potentially, um, I, I don't think they ever really do with disco, but no, but they're setting up the potential. Here for them to be able to say, Disco, when he gets in the ring, turns it off and becomes an actual serious competitor. And boom, you're able to actually make him someone that the crowd can believe being a champion. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of love this one, actually. Hmm. Disco does a great job of making it a genuine, if massively ridiculous, plot point that he has to remind himself to stop dancing and go for pins. Malenko beats the ever-loving crap out of Disco, and demonstrates the massive amount of ways he has to take opponents down. Sure. So it actually comes together as a very nice story. Malenko is clearly the superior fighter, but Disco does have heart and determination. It's just that, as Heenan says, he needs someone to get him focused and help him hone his craft some more. Mm-hmm. Despite Disco's comedic character, and despite Malenko never really feeling like he's in danger of losing his title, it really did a lot to build up Disco, even en route to a loss, so I liked it a lot
1: yeah i I can definitely appreciate what they're going for and how well it was done, even if ultimately I'm not that interested in the payoff, which is disco being a challenger for not the top title but a title
0: yeah yeah i mean I, I think I, I'm less opposed to disco Inferno than you are, but he's also not my favorite wrestler, but I think you and I can both appreciate like what they're trying to do here is done well
1: yeah no absolutely Free for this a bit i I noticed originally and I, when I've I noticed it again in the rewatch. Malenko was beating up Disco Inferno in the match, and he doesn't do like the normal leg drop where you usually jump and leg drop. He like steps towards the ropes, bounces off just like like a a little slight hop with like one leg and leg drop. Oh
0: right, yeah, yeah. It's like it's
1: just a slight variation. I'm like, oh, that's different.
0: Another good little variation by Malenko. Yeah, yeah. Like every time you think that you've seen the way that he does a move, you'll see another match with him and he just does it in a completely different way.
1: It's it's, it's a little thing, but it's. It's a sign that there's so much more he can do than he, even we, we've gotten to see at this point.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely amazing.
1: Yep. Monko's as champion would end the very next night, her to Mysterio. In turn, he'd be booked into a match against Chris Benoit at Hogwa, which we saw was Oh, good.
0: yeah, that was great. Our sixth match is Joe Gomez versus Mongo McMichael with Queen Deborah. Referee for this one is Randy Anderson.
1: They just recently brought in Mongo as the fourth horseman. At the same time, Joe Gomez is tag teaming with our favorite wrestler, the Renegade. But three weeks out from the show, I and Ric Flair are booked against Gomez and Renegade, but they decided to beat them up backstage instead of having a match, which I'm not upset
0: about at all. Yeah, can't object to that, honestly. Yeah. Uh,
1: later on, another show, Forceman would be in the ring and they would be doing stuff. Beating up, I believe Savage or someone else at this point. Gomez would bravely run in and also get beat up some more. <laughs> he, he, he wants his revenge. He's not very good at getting his revenge, but he wants his revenge.
0: You gotta want it first. You gotta want it first, and that's true. Yeah, you work that's at it, buddy. Step.
1: Yeah. This actually leads to, believe it or not, Joe Gomez and Renegade being in the main event of the Go Home Nitro <laughs> for Bash V26. The last thing on the show was a eight man tag team match involving all four of the horsemen finally getting chance to wrestle together against the team of the Rock and Roll Express, whom the horsemen had beat up the previous week when Gomez ran to help them, and the team of Renegade and Joe Gomez. The finish would go horribly wry. The planned finish of the match is that uh, one of the horsemen I want to say R, and say, oh, I do who exactly it is, is down. So Renegade is going to take advantage of all the fighting on the outside and got being down. He's going to go up top. And do a big splash and you know try and win the match. He knows he has to jump, but also he knows he's supposed to be hit, and he's gotta be hit yeah. the back. The way, he do- the way he does it. He basically just does the jump. Either he's early or Mongo's late. It doesn't matter. Mongo tries swing the briefcase at him, but he's already jumped. <laughs> which basically means he kinda just throws the briefcase basically past the air when he where where he would have been a minute ago. And it just does a full front flip, lands on his back, and gets put in the figure four.
0: <laughs> okay, so it, it's possible Mongo might have been late there, but still, like... Just wait! Yeah, if you know you're supposed to be hit, then just, like, fake having your balance off a little bit or yeah, something. Yeah, stand like
1: there and wait for the hit, and then fall forward.
0: Yeah, like, you know you're supposed to feel the hit first. <laughs> yeah. So don't jump!
1: Yeah, it's just hilarious, because he jumps, and Mongo just kind of chucks the briefcase in the direction he, <laughs> where he was, so just, like, flies into the ring. They didn't hit anybody. Oh, God. It's just a bizarre visual. Like, wait, what? I should rewind to watch it, like, three times to figure out what, what to happen. Awesome. Also note that Conan is be seen during all this.
0: Well, as he said, he hasn't been around long enough to build an alliance, so...
1: I know, you couldn't you could have just had everybody be injured and Conan just takes his place?
0: Yeah, or have him come out and make the save from a horseman beatdown or something, something. like that. Yeah,
1: yeah, anything would be great.
0: Uh, yeah, Conan, it might might not be time that's your problem. It might be your unwillingness to be helpful. That's true. But then again, he would be helping Renegade, so.
1: Oh, right, yeah.
0: <laughs> Say what you will about him, but Joe Gomez has some awesome music. He does. It sounds like what you'd play for a gunfight in a Wild West movie directed by John Woo.
1: That's, that's fair, yeah.
0: Mongo, of course, has the amazing horseman guitar theme. Mm -hmm. Deborah comes out with a little poodle and has quite a nice purple and black dress. Tony notes that the poodle is a different dog from Mongo's beloved Pepe, and bemoans the fact that Pepe is no longer good enough for Mongo now, that he's a horseman. Heenan jokes that Mongo uses Pepe as a doorstop now, which gets a chuckle out of Tony. (laughs) That's
1: that's a good line, yeah.
0: Mongo hits an early three-point stance clothesline, and Dusty bizarrely thinks that Tony... Calling that move meant that that was the poodle's name. <laughs> <laughs> he then claims the poodle is named Ditka after the famous coach, and Tony can barely protest through laughter. Yeah, sure. Mongo yells at Gomez, but Gomez fires back with strikes and a crossbody for two. Mongo's lip is bleeding. They trade strikes and shoulder blocks until Mongo boots Gomez in the crotch and lays him with choking and kicks. Heenan claims he always liked Mongo, and when Tony notes that basically every Nitro ever serves as video evidence that that's <laughs> not true,
2: <laughs> true.
0: Heenan claims it was Eric Bischoff burying Mongo, and the dub was edited.
1: <laughs> I mean, good credit, you gotta go to something. Yeah. That is bold. That is very bold, yeah.
0: Mongo earns two counts of the backbreaker and reverse neckbreaker, but Gomez rolls him up on a figure four attempt for two. Gomez's back body drop sends Mongo leg first into the ropes, which could not have felt good. No. Gomez hits strange running, jumping chops and a couple drop kicks, then tries a sunset flip, but Mongo awkwardly sits on him for two. Gomez further awkwardly rolls him over for two. Mongo counters a charge with the tombstone pile driver for the three count and the win. By the end of the match, Mongo's ponytail had come loose, so he and Gomez had similar black outfits and similar loose long hair. Yes. Yes. Fortunately, one was wearing shorts and the other full pants, but I did have to pay close attention to make sure I was keeping track of them.
1: (laughs) No, I had the same issue as well, yeah.
0: Heenan claims the poodle is Mongo's ferocious guard dog who could tear the cuff right off your pants. (laughs) Tony impressively no-sells that to build up Mongo as a force in WCW. The replays show a good move from Gomez, who recognizes that his feet are actually too close to the ropes after the pile driver. Uh Uh-huh. So he smoothly writhes in apparent pain to move them away, so the pain can clearly count. Nice little touch there. Thoughts on this one?
1: I mean, it's a pretty sloppy match. Same time, it's longer than you think they would give this this match yeah. and these competitors. This is longer than the DDP's match, by the way. Yes, not by like a massive amount, but the fact that they threw Mongo out in like his third ever match, practically, and it's low in that he's had. Mm-hmm. And gave him so much time against against a guy who nothing against Gomez, apparently I looked up, he had been wrestling for about five or six years at this point, so it wasn't like yeah. a complete amateur. But it's weird that like, oh yeah, you're sure, you know, you're not experienced, but don't worry, this guy will walk you through it. Not who I would have picked.
0: Gomez seems okay, but he does not seem like the sort of ring veteran that you put the absolute newbie in a match with oh. and expect it to go well, yeah. Yeah. They
1: don't botch a whole lot, thankfully, but... Like, the actual action is not super exciting. Mm mm-hmm. uh, There's a lot of, well, what are you going to do next? Uh, I'm going to whip out the ropes and we'll do something. What now? we will whip you off the ropes to do something again. Uh huh. Comparing other matches, even on this show, you can see how you can make a more natural flow than stop. Let's have a brief little chat, so what the next move is, and I'll throw you out the ropes.
0: Well, and again, like, you know, we've seen on previous shows like DDP and Equalizer on 95 how you can get a performer that can take another performer that's generally regarded as not as strong in the ring yeah. or uh or an actual rookie and make a genuine match out of it. Yeah. And this is just not that type of performance.
1: Yeah, I feel like if they had booked this more like a squash match than actually as a competitive match like it is, they could have a lot of fun with that. They could have, you know, have Mago just beats him up for a bit, maybe start starts make a comeback and Deborah interferes, he gets distracted and takes a tombstone.
0: Yeah. I think they are genuinely, at this point, trying to build up Gomez a little bit as well. They are. Which is yeah. probably why you don't get the squash match thing. Sure. But yeah, this is a rare case where I think you, you probably would have been better off with the squash match. Right.
1: It's weird, too, as you mentioned, seeing the attempt figure for counter and to roll a pin match, and it's not Flair. <laughs>
0: That's true. And
1: it's not Jeff Jarrett. Yeah. Like, the two people you associate that with. It's very weird. They clearly just, like, tried to give their greatest hits to Mongo. Flair is probably like, you know, you at the right spot, and he just tells in that spot and they just do it. Mm -hmm. As he noted, it's funny, to his credit, it's good in his part, watching Gomez move his legs away from the ropes. It's very very congenial of him to to let the guy beat him like that.
0: Well, what I like about it, though, is that he does make it look like it's a movement out of pain. No, it's true. Like he's just writhing on the mat and it just happens to go away from the ropes. That was a case where I think you actually could see his experience shining through.
1: That's fair, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's not a knock on him that he had to do it. Yeah. It's just kind of funny. Can like, you look for it like, huh, if you just stay exactly where you were, he couldn't have beaten you. Yeah. At the same time, he would have just picked you up in Tombstone you again, which I don't know, would have been better for yeah. you. Why is this not a Nitro? Mm-hmm. Like, why is this not a Nitro? This is on a pay per view, but as you mentioned, the Steiners Harlem Heat exactly. match is on.
0: Yeah, this is the match more than any. Because it sounds like the Steiners versus Harlem Heat was not particularly long. I think it's around the same length of this match. Right. Perhaps even shorter. So, I would have swapped them. I would have put this on the pre-show and and the Steiners versus Harlem Heat on this show.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, the other question they have, and this is a more general question with Mongo. He always wears the same generic black and white definitely pants but they're like are the two they're like between shorts and pants, whatever they like call the, them. They're
0: like they're they're the football Football shorts that folks wear. Okay. Under the uniform, yeah.
1: So I get okay. So I get that he wears those, and I get the numbers on them. But why doesn't he wear Bears colors?
0: Well, maybe because he's a bad guy now. So he's like, I'm more important than than anything. So he doesn't. He's not like associating himself with his old team. Hmm. Yeah.
1: Well, he's wearing a number of
0: his old team. Yeah, but that's his number.
1: <laughs> I I know. I just think that would have been night. Would have. Make him look less generic. Yeah. And made Elijah track in this match, especially, where they had basically the same haircut and almost same outfit. It's really confusing, half of those match. Especially when they're just getting grouping up for an Irish whip, throw off the rope spot, and falling down to track who's who in that match.
0: Yeah. Yeah, this was okay. The match ended up pretty basic, and I don't feel it should have been on pay-per-view. There's a few really awkward points in this, and some quite dangerous-looking falls as well. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, Mongo's charisma is obvious. Gomez shows some good babyface fire, so it's not like it's some kind of disaster. It's just not really an interesting watch. Agreed. I still can't believe that they gave complete rookie Mongo the tombstone piledriver as a finisher either. Absolutely terrifying every time.
1: Yes. (laughs) Well, if they were pushing Joe Gomez, they are not anymore. Uh, he would be one of the many people that would wrestle on the Saturday night taping at Sturgis, where he'd be on the losing team in a six-man tag match against the Dungeon of Doom.
0: Okay. We cut backstage, where Gene is with Ric Flair in pink robe, alongside Elizabeth and Woman, who is, one must note, actively seducing Mean Jean.
2: Yes.
3: I'm joined once again by Miss Elizabeth. I'm joined by... Woman. At please, you distract me. I can't do a job as a professional if you're going to constantly do that to me. Ric Flair, you've got to have other things on your mind this evening. An opportunity of gaining, yet as I said earlier, another trophy for your large trophy case. You cage. can never have enough
4: trophies in life. Now, Mongo did it once. The Nature Boy will do it twice And then Double A And the Crippler will take down The Devil and the Giant And tomorrow night at Nitro Woo! I will be A man with a U.S. Championship And a World Heavyweight Championship Meaning Gene La Cucaracha Woo! Brother It's Bash at the Beach And we are here in Daytona To stop Woo! And profile. Take a look at yes. what's not south of the border, brother, but right here in Daytona, La hey, Elizabeth, I'm very Woo! curious, uh, what oh, kind of a... man! They say that you're a man with a thousand holds. Tonight, brother, you gotta meet a man that has unlimited knowledge of the greatest sport in the world. Right, Mean Gene? Do you, you, me, do you mind if I talk to the ladies? Don't mind at all, I would brother. assume
3: across the street at that big, large uh, hotel overlooking the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, Elizabeth, you're going to be throwing a little party. I know you've got some extra money uh, in your pockets these days. Oh,
2: absolutely. There's going to be a <laughs> great big party.
3: Great big, a great big party?
2: Yeah.
3: <laughs> Is it something that I should be included in?
4: Oh, I think a woman would like that.
3: Woman, is that true? Yes, I
4: would. I'd have Liz tap into that big source of money she's got, so we can have a private party, jean
3: A, 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 a pri- private party? Yes. Yes. I have no idea what you're talking about. Please, mean Gene. Don't embarrass let me. Make me.
4: reference to one more point, Macho Man. We know you're focused. We know you've got great plans for later tonight. But Macho, never stop looking at that camera. Never stop, stop thinking, wondering, it. and praying that someday, woo, the lovely one could be back home. Because, brother, it's never gonna happen. Woo!
3: I think, uh, Rick Flair, you have said it all, as they say in the beer commercial.
4: My friend not only said it all, done it all. Woo! Conan, grab your best hold, kid. Nature Boy coming your way. Woo! You know, woman.
3: If anything, you know, I've I've got a commitment elsewhere, but uh, I must say, if anything were to happen, you've been very, very kind to me, very attractive. I just don't particularly care for the people that you hang around with these days.
4: Is that true? Well, I just don't believe that, Gene. I believe you have it bad for me, and you don't care who I hang with or what I do. Isn't that right, Dar? Mean Gene, bottom me. line is, woman makes one more advance towards you. You won't be able to go back to Sarasota. You'll be across the street on the penthouse with the nature bar and the girls. partying in Daytona Woo! All night long. Tell them, Mean Gene. Conan, we're fixing you. Walk that aisle.
3: In addition to Woo! wrestling, we're going to have a little pole vaulting competition here. Let's get you back up to the ring for more action.
0: Well, this was completely nuts. Yeah? Between woman continually seducing Gene through the entire promo, Flair randomly singing La Cucaracha, Flair mixing up Conan and Dean Malenko, and repeated references to one or more parties and money taken from Macho Man, Flair still manages to somehow get in a lot of story, effectively building up not only his own match against Conan, but the WCW versus The Outsiders match, and the other Horsemen's match against the Giant and Kevin Sullivan. Considering just how much is going on here, it's incredible how well they do at getting the necessary points in there in a clear manner.
1: Yeah, that's fair.
0: I'm guessing I really don't want to know what Gene meant with that pole vaulting joke at the end there, though.
1: I don't think you do, no. Yeah, I, I could do with less, um, Gene being horny, just in general in my life. That'd be great. Yeah. Th- it's funny, is- but...
0: This is less bad than what they do in 99 and 2000 is... Uh, yeah. Is just more like he's a dirty old man. So
1: true. Yeah, I just love that he mixes up Conan and Dean Malenko. Yes, I mean you put him on police line, but you can't tell them apart.
0: <laughs> it's the sad thing is it, it's a great line that he has. He's like, you know, they call you the man of a thousand holds, but you're facing a man with unlimited knowledge of the sport of wrestling. You know, so it's a terrific line. He just has the wrong guy entirely.
1: He's ready for a match with Blanco, I can tell you that.
0: Which would be cool. I mean, that would be a great match.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: (laughs) Our seventh match is Dean Malenko versus, I mean, Conan versus the nature boy, Ric Flair, (laughs) with Elizabeth and Woman for Conan's WCW United States Heavyweight Championship. Referee for this one is Nick Patrick. The
1: post Great American Bath Nitro. Involved, Rene Savage being reinstated after being off for a while, Probably because it's too dangerous. So they, at least for now, blow off the Flair Savage stuff, although obviously they're still mentioning it. And then they're building up the Horsemen fighting the Rock and Roll Express, and later the team I've dubbed Rene Gomez. <laughs> I put a T in my notes as well, so that, that holds.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's legal.
1: I believe so, yeah. On Nitro, there's no Conan. This on the Go Home Nitro, other than the tag match, is a, you know, bottom of the stage promo, where the horsemen are just all talking about their matches. So, you know, hey, we have this tag match, we're going to title shot. Oh, you know, Manga's going to beat up Joe Gomez there, and, you know, I'm going to win the U.S. title. And you're like, oh, you, apparently you are. <laughs> That's a thing you're going to do now. I wonder if this is partly because at this point Conan is still working both AAA in Mexico and here.
0: Might just not have the time to do a build-up, really.
1: Yeah. He is, in fact, still their um, North American champion. It's funny because that and the U.S. title here. So it's possible to that. I did look up him working house shows. Thankfully, CageMatch.net is a very thorough resource. I did find that he worked the house shows in the previous weekend before this pay-per-view. Weirdly, they gave him three house show matches to prep, and they had him fight Kevin Sullivan three times.
0: Okay. <laughs> interesting.
1: I guess that preps you for Flair, apparently. <laughs> I don't know. I know I just didn't have him fight Flair three times just to prep the match for. Yeah, yeah. A little weird.
0: Conan comes out in basically a drum major's coat, black and red. It's an interesting look. Better than a lot of his entrance gear, though, honestly. Yeah, it's true. Dusty repeatedly calls him Conad. Conad.
1: Yeah, it's so weird. I don't know why. Why? Why is that?
0: Have you ever heard of the Conan the Barbarian movie, Dusty? It was yes. It was pretty big.
1: Yeah, there be two of them. Yeah,
0: yeah. Dude in it called Arnold Schwarzenegger. You might have heard of him. Yeah. Right. Flair making his entrance with woman and Elizabeth delights in his own entrance video as it shows him doing the figure four. Notably, discussing the upcoming Horseman versus Giant match, Tony claims that Giant is seven foot four which would mean that Arn's division was a little off. Oh. Still a great line, though. It is, yeah. Conan's actual ring gear is pretty neat, with fringe on both the boots and the singlet. It's just that those fringes are different colors, so it doesn't look as unified as it should. Yeah, that's true. Still, I appreciate the effort at an interesting outfit. Yeah, sure. Interestingly, the ring gear spells his name K-O-N-A-N, Missing another of the middle ends. Correct, yes. Which I think is what he did in Mexico, but Correct, I think they yes. probably gave it two ends here to make it less likely they get a copyright. Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: The, the one and it's more of a one to one comparison. Yeah. For Mexico, where, yeah, I think it's just a copyright thing. Put a second in, uh, oh, we're talking about, we were in reference thinking, what movie? What, what who are we talking about? It's just Conan here. Who What who, who, who do you mean?
0: That's what Dusty's doing, is trying to protect him further.
1: Oh, that's It's smart.
0: Conad. It's not Conan, it's Conad.
1: He learned his lesson after Racta clearly.
0: Yes. <laughs> Handshake to start. Flair gets Conan in the corner, backs off, and gives a woo. Conan gets one with a side headlock takeover, but Flair rolls him up for two. Conan eventually gets Flair in the corner, but backs off, and Flair shoves him, so Conan slaps him hard and gives a woo that's actually closer to a stinger call. Yeah. He does a more accurate one a bit later, and works the back with a surfboard, kicks, and some press slams before clotheslining Flair and himself over the ropes. Elizabeth and Woman help Flair up, but Conan dives on Flair anyway, then chases Woman. Conan goes up top, preparing to leap at Flair, but Woman shakes the bottom rope, which somehow makes Conan fall, even though there's no conceivable way that should have shaken the top rope.
1: She took it so hard, Bob, that it went down the rope, and to the pole itself you're standing on.
0: The the solid metal pole. Yeah. That does not move.
1: It's vibrational frequencies. It's it's very complicated stuff.
0: Sure. <laughs> Flair hits a knee drop for two, and wears Conan down with help from a sneaky kick to the nuts by woman. It's a good kick, too. <laughs> she really winds up for that one.
1: Yeah, she get 20, 30 yards on that kick, for sure.
0: Yes. He calls Elizabeth to the apron and points her out to Patrick so that he can hurl Conan over the ropes behind Patrick's back. (laughs) Love it. Hey, ref, she's about to cheat for me. He'll yell at her so I can cheat.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That's why you have two managers there. Exactly. Might as well use them.
0: Every heel should have two managers. (laughs) Absolutely. Flair gets four two counts with a stalling suplex, but Conan fires up and earns a Flare flop with strikes, sends Flair flipping to the apron, and Springboard drop kicks him off. Back in, Flair begs for mercy and sneaks in a kick as Patrick is trying to separate them. Flair tries the figure four, but Conan small packages him for two, then gets Flair with his own figure four. Flair gets the ropes, but Patrick kicks his hand off. I believe he saw Elizabeth standing there and mistakenly thought she pushed the ropes towards Flair, which to be fair is a spot they often do. Yeah. Flair gets the ropes again a, a moment later to break. Conan gets two counts with a suplex. A flare karma into a single-hand bulldog, and a rolling clothesline, but Elizabeth distracts the ref on a Conan roll-up. Flair counters a side headlock with a backbreaker and slumps over, so while Patrick checks on him, Woman, somehow, KOs Conan with a high-heeled shoe. Flair pins Conan with his feet on the ropes for the three-count and the win. Patrick lets Woman present the U.S. title to Flair, and she gives Flair a smooch. Flair struts out with Woman and Elizabeth, as Heenan delights in Woo! (laughs) Thoughts on this one?
1: That was a pretty good match. I mean, you have Flair, who at this point, uh, you know, he's not his physical prime, but obviously he's going to keep wrestling for another way longer than this. So it's not like he's on on his last legs. Conan, at this point, physically, he can still go really well. He's not as used to American style, although he's been wrestling... And WCW, several months now, so he's got plenty of practice, isn't it? like, him in late, late 95 when he's just starting out? Mm-hmm. I think, for me, the problem is that, as I mentioned, they didn't have these two work house show matches, as far as I can find records of. I really wish really have had Flair work those three house shows in the build-up really help this match, because there's lots of times here where, like with the uh Gomez and Mongo match, they had sort of... Stop, do the brief little chat you do between wrestlers, and then push off the ropes or push out the corner. A mm. lot of lot of that. They haven't worked this match, you know, five, six times, and they, you know, got everything down to a science. It's definitely better than the Mongo Gomez match because of all people involved, but it has that same kind of problem where it's just, it's not as fluid and as smooth that I would like. And in a way, it stands out more because it's flair and because it's Conan.
0: You expect you kind of, more. Yeah,
1: you expect more from them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's there's just a little bit where they repeat, you know. There's two different press slam spots, you know. There's multiple bits where they, you for know, managers come up on the apron to try to distract them. And again, as you I know, joked about, it. Flair does the I'll play the figure four all oh, reverse it into a roll up move, which he gave to Mongo in the last match. <laughs> yeah, that's why Conan knew it expected, he'd seen the match before. <laughs> if we had a series of Flair Conan matches, unfortunately we don't, as far as I can tell. I think they could have a really good match between the two of them. If like if this happens like say two years later, if we got like Flair and Conan when he's like full heel and he's real experienced you know playing the heel like that, I could see the bats being really good mm-hmm. here it's there's definitely the hint of what they could do, and you have Conan Mortis' physical peak just not worn down with injuries. It's happened by being a wrestler. So it has that going forward at the same time? It's just not as fluid as I would like. okay that said, I do want to credit them for how they booked the overall d of Conan. They really protect him very well. I mean, Flair is super cheating with both his managers and the high heel shoe, and he's, he's doing the cheap pin after he's ever been knocked out by his manager. So they really are building up that, here's all stuff I gotta do to beat Conan. Yeah. So even though I like the match as much, the way they did it was good for Conan, I'm saying.
0: Yeah, there's a string of kind of neat matches during this period where they put Flair up against wrestlers he didn't normally fight, and they're generally quite nice. Yeah. And for me, this was no exception. Conan and Flair put together a good contest that let Conan show his stuff and blended their styles quite well. It built nicely off of Conan's earlier promo, too, with him clearly willing to go after Flair, despite his managers trying to manipulate the situation. It does make Conan look quite strong, in that it takes so many different cheats to finally take him down, as you noted, but there is probably a bit too much of it. Yeah. It just gets a bit funny by the end rather than tense. The ending is a little weird, too. The high-heeled shoe is normally dangerous because they swing it for the eye, not because it's a knockout blow, by my recollection. Yeah. Still, overall, I enjoyed this, and even if the cheating got a bit much, it was fun seeing Flair in full trickster god mode. Well, Conan did a nice job keeping up.
1: The overall format of young, less experienced, playing a straight face against mega-heel with his two managers and willing to take every shortcut Flair works well as a whole. Yeah, I just think the two of them don't have enough experience working together to sort of work the kinks out.
0: I'd agree. Yeah, this is not quite the polish that you want, but like you said earlier, you can you can see the potential of what this pairing could be.
1: Yeah, and, and the fact that we have a Conan flare match in '96 is a definitely interesting historical note, if nothing else.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, one thing to note briefly is that Conan is also holding a championship in Mexico. I've seen before, he'll come out with both belts. Yeah. Should look how strong I am? I have two different belts. On this show, he comes out with just the U.S. belt. Unfortunately, he doesn't leave with it. But when you see him on the Nitro the, the next night, one, he has the eye patch. So apparently, they are selling the eye as the injury, apparently.
0: Uh, cl- it very clearly did not hit him in oh, the right. eye. But And he doesn't sell the eye in the match. But okay. No, he
1: doesn't. Anyway, so yeah, he's, he's, next show, you see him with an eye patch and with his other belt. So he does have it. I looked. Up, he didn't lose that title for like a year and a half.
0: Maybe he was worried that he'd uh, leave the wrong belt there if he brought them both.
1: <laughs> that said, they could have had fun with the two belts, and they could have had you know Flair tried to use the US belt, and while the rest of the track to get rid of it, he takes Conan's other belt.
0: That, yeah, I could
1: that'd see. be fitting. Yeah,
0: yeah. Have have both ladies take a belt each and pin Conan between them.
1: Oh, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> it right writes itself. Weirdly, as I know, there wasn't really any story with Conan and Flair. However, there's a brief bit of story building up a match that we don't actually get. So in the build-up on Nitro, we have a long match with Eddie Guerrero and Barbarian. And afterwards, Eddie, to be fair, Eddie wrestles a 10-minute match, and then has to do a promo, so good on him. Yeah. Gene interviews him, and they talk about, back at Uncensored, he had a match against Conan for the US title. Right. He's, like, leapfrogging Conan, and Conan accidentally hit from the groin which we saw on uh, the uh, 18th that 87th Starcade with poor Dr. Dusty T- oh, Williams. Oh, yeah.
0: But, uh. Which, is that
1: that was a legit one, because, yeah. But anyways, that and storyline leads to him losing the match. So he randomly, like, three months later, he's like, by the way, I'm really annoyed about that finish. I really should take to get another shot at you, Conan. You know, if you win on the next show, I want to challenge you for the title, Conan. Of course, Conan's not champion anymore, but that would lead into... Eddie getting his rematch against Flair, the new champion. Okay. Which is the match we saw at Hogwild.
0: Yeah. Which was quite nice, aside from the one suplex spot, as I recall.
1: Yes. Now, if you want to see an interesting case of someone being as high as you can be without being world champion and then about as low as you can be within a month period, Conan does not work Hogwild as no, not champion. Instead, he works the Saturday Night taping. Not quite some event event, defending a US title against Brick Flair, one of the greats of all time, to wrestling a, essentially a pre-show match in one yeah. month is a pretty drastic fall.
0: Yeah, at least he has a match, I guess. That's true.
1: There is one slight wrinkle that does help elevate a little bit, though. So it's Conan and Guerrero Jr. before he, you know, made it big with Eddie. Okay. And guess what move Conan uses to win the match? Splash Mountain. Okay. Your move, psychosis.
0: There you go, yes.
1: (laughs) Look what I could do. I can win the match at this point. I can
0: actually win.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, see? Uh I don't think it's a story, but that would be a good story.
0: (laughs) Backstage, Gene is in front of a door with a restricted area sign, but walks down the hall with the cops again. He says he heard the mysterious third man speaking, and the voice springs in the subconscious. (laughs) Yes. I love Gene Okerlund but he can't quite place it. Considering he spent like a decade or more interviewing the man it turns out to be, he really should have an easier time recalling the voice. Yeah. Heenan suggests bribing a cop to find out who they saw going in. Note that these are the same cops who Gene earlier said were there to guard him, not the room, but apparently we've all forgotten that, and now they've totally been guarding this room the entire time. Right. Gene goes to talk to one of the cops, but stops and accuses Heenan of getting him involved in a scam. O- okay. Gene, I get that bribing a cop is a bad idea, but you could just ask. Yeah. It's not like they're the Secret Service guarding the president. They can tell you who walked through the door.
1: Yeah. This, this isn't like a show in England, and you have the feeder standing at the door, and, they can't, and they're not allowed to talk. Yeah. You could just say, hey, buddy, you know, I've been hanging out with you the last hour or so watching the match on the monitor. You can you tell me who came in there? It'd be great. Yeah. Like I said, just, it's just funny that Gene can't recognize the voice. Yes. I really wish we could like, gotten a visual for it. Like, he walks up to the door and, like, tries to talk to the person. Like, he knows they're in there. And, you know, like, both of the doors
0: are like... <laughs> yeah.
1: They just start doing their usual response when Mundine asks them a question. But of the door, is like, it feels so familiar. <laughs> Alas, we don't get it.
0: Our eighth match is The Horseman, Chris Benoit and Arn Anderson, versus the Giant and the Taskmaster, Kevin Sullivan, of the Dungeon of Doom, with the Mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart. If the Horsemen win, one of the four Horsemen, read Ric Flair, gets a world title shot against the Giant on Nitro. Referee for this one is Jimmy Jett.
1: You know, you seem so sure that Flair would get the world title shot. Why not Mongo?
0: Uh, it seems unlikely, let's just say.
1: You can't picture them trying to book a match where Mongo's goal is to try to Tombstone pile driver the Giant?
0: No, 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 not really.
1: <laughs> Physics don't work that way.
0: No. <laughs> Nor do Mongo's knees.
1: <laughs> Very true. What's been going on in the last few months is that there's a personal feud between Kevin Sullivan and Chris Benoit. It's really awkward to talk about, so we don't really go too much in-depth with that, and this isn't one of those shows where that's as important, so we don't need to go as in-depth on that. The key thing to mention is that this is the same time that Benoit has been made when the horsemen so because him and Sullivan are fighting and they're both parts of groups, whether one's a member and one's a leader, their respective groups are now involved. Mm-hmm. Also key dynamic is that the Giant won the world title off of Ric Flair a few months back and is a protector of Kevin Sullivan. The D is Sullivan's like a father figure to him. Even though obviously Sullivan's father figure is that weird stone guy that yells everything. Yes. I really miss that guy, don't you? He, he
0: needs to be on he needed to be on so many more shows during this era. Yeah, they should have had him on commentary.
1: <laughs> oh, nice! Yeah, yeah. So this really building up the idea that the Horseman won a title shot for definitely Ric Flair and nobody else. And the Giant is so confident in himself and in Kevin Sullivan as the backbone slash, uh, I guess, military man <laughs> of the of the Dungeon of Doom that he's willing to put a title shot on the line if they beat him or if they beat Sullivan. Okay. There's also, I think it's in the Go Home Nitro. Because there's, there's only so many, you know, horse references you can make and you know, from the horsemen and everything. They give Giant a line about gelding them, and I'm like, oh, I would not. <laughs> Don't Google that, kids.
0: Yeah. More Four Horsemen theme for me tonight. Oh, Bash of the Beach, you spoil me.
1: You know you're going to get so much uh, of that theme you hate next show, so enjoy this. I know,
0: song. yeah, yeah. As Anderson and Benoit enter, Sullivan and Giant charge down the ramp and hit them from behind. Hilariously, Sullivan does a full-on forearm strike on Anderson, but Giant just kind of like jogs up to Benoit and lightly pushes him from behind like he's catching his attention, not trying to hurt him.
1: Like, hey, you dropped your phone, buddy.
0: Yeah. Sullivan beats Anderson up and hits him with a chair while Giant beats up Benoit, but Mongo suddenly appears and hits Giant with a briefcase. Giant chases Mongo backstage... Leaving Sullivan alone with the horsemen, who give him a kicking and roll him in to start the match proper. Benoit and Sullivan start and trade blows until Benoit rakes the eyes. Giant strides purposefully down the entrance ramp, but Benoit and Anderson isolate Sullivan on their side of the ring and quickly tag in and out to wear him down. Sullivan fights back as best he can, but either a quick horseman tag or the classic Arn Anderson fall but grab the opponent to stop a tag bit keeps him in danger. Sullivan does get a two count when Giant clotheslines Anderson during Anderson's DDT attempt too close to the ropes. <laughs> Dusty notes that Giant almost won the match for his team without even getting in. Yeah, The Horsemen, meanwhile, concentrate more on hurting Sullivan than going for pins, but do earn two with an Anderson counter to a leg hold. They keep blocking Sullivan's chances at a tag, but Sullivan counters a pile driver by throwing Anderson back into Bemois, though they kind of lose all momentum midway and Arn has to visibly throw himself the rest of the way.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: Sullivan back-suplexes Anderson and finally tags Giant, and the crowd absolutely erupts. Benoit, too late to stop the tag, boots Sullivan out and beats him up outside. Anderson, meanwhile, flees from Giant, but finally sneaks in some strikes. Only for Giant to no-sell, big-boot him and suplex him. Benoit and Sullivan fight behind the commentary team, and Sullivan slams Benoit and rams his head into the ground as Giant easily slams Anderson for the three-count and the win. Sullivan tiredly walks back toward the ring, but Benoit dives off the commentary stand onto him, hits him with a chair, and takes him back to the ring. Giant has already left, so Benoit ignores the barely-conscious Anderson and beats the crap out of Sullivan, until Woman comes out and begs for him to stop before he does real damage. Giant and Hart return, and Benoit, Woman, and a dazed Arne Flee as Giant, hauls Sullivan to his feet, and carries him on his shoulder out of the ring and up the ramp. For some reason, WCW's camera crew decides to film that by pointing the camera right at Sullivan's butt. Yeah, they do. Dusty wonders what woman was doing, and Heenan says maybe she didn't want them to be DQ'd, suspended, or fined. Dusty shoots it down because the match was already over, which, yeah, kind of opposes the first of those three to some extent, but the other two were totally possible. Yeah. Tony points out in the replay that as Giant comes in, Arn reaches out to Sullivan, but Sullivan slaps his hand away. Tony theorizes Arn might have been checking on Sullivan. I kind of wonder if it was muscle memory for Anderson tag work.
1: Yeah, it's very possible.
0: He's down, grab him. (laughs) Yeah, right. Thoughts on this?
1: This is another interesting case, kind of like the Malenko and Disco Inferno match, where, in this case, it's because of the location that the heel in this case, Sullivan, really is the face of the match.
0: Yes, yeah, very much so.
1: Because they've been doing this thing where the giant is a heel, because the end of Doom are all heels, What's left him at this point. But he's so like, strong and dominant. Like There's a match where he gets hit by the wooden chairs by Scott Steiner, of all people. It breaks through his back, and he like fully no-sells it. Mm-hmm. It's like, here's this unstoppable guy, and even if he's not a good guy, you just want to see him do so well, and he's a and he's a good promo as well.
6: Yeah,
2: so
1: he's kind of slowly becoming a face. While Sullivan, I guess, just by default in this area is, and they worked a match as if he's the face there. So
0: Sullivan had a long history in Florida wrestling. So yes, correct. in makes yeah. sense. Yeah,
1: worked worked the Grams in uh, FCW that version of that. So I understand the reason why. But if you're like the normal like viewing audience, thankfully with the explanation helps a little bit. Definitely got weird like. The face-in-peril Kevin Sullivan fighting against the Horsemen is interesting.
0: Yeah, it's good that they incorporated Sullivan's different reputation in Florida into their promos, because I think that helps the viewer that's not from the actual live crowd know, okay, that's why he's getting these kinds of reactions.
1: Exactly, yeah. Yeah, the fact that they had Giant mention it in their promo, and Arn mentioned it as well with Mm Nice Touch. Yeah. Yeah, for as little as he actually does in the match, this definitely is the showcase for the Giant. Oh, yeah. They build him up very strongly with his center. interference being so powerful. When he finally gets the tag, it's a no-brainer that he's going to win. It is kind of funny you think about it, though. Okay, so this whole match is, we can just beat up Sullivan and get our title shot. Like, yeah, but you got to beat the Giant if you win a title shot. <laughs> That's true. And you clearly can't beat the giant. So,
0: well, I mean, t- to be fair, the guy getting the title shot is Ric Flair, who we have not seen demonstrate he can't beat the giant.
1: Well, Flair's the guy that lost the title of the giant.
0: Yeah, me. yeah, but you know, that was that was months ago.
1: Yeah. So I bring my other question: Where is uh, Flair during all this? Uh, I, mean, I know he's celebrating his win, but this whole match is to get him a, t- a title shot, right?
0: I mean, he's probably like four champagne bottles deep in the back at this point. So,
1: <laughs> but <laughs> so. it could storyline. You think he he would have some sort of input in this match that's all about getting a title shot. Yeah, yeah. I do appreciate that they did the brief separation bit by using Mongo, which is nice. Again, I don't want so much interference like we got in the previous match with Flair, because like I said, that was a bit much. Mm -hmm. But having at least the presence of her briefly, you know, is a bit interesting. Yeah. His absence is just notable. Like I said, this match is ultimately designed to have the Giant look really strong, see how good he is. He says it's the natural talent he has. So it gets the point across. It does have that weird prolonged bit where they're just also beating up Sullivan more when nothing matters at this point. But other than that, it's really good.
0: Yeah, this was basically just Arn and Memoir beating the ever-loving crap out of Kevin Sullivan for several minutes, but it was done well, especially on Arn's part. It feels so good to see the classic Anderson tag team tactics again, and we got a lot of that from this match. It probably could have been cut down by a minute or two, but it definitely worked to get the crowd charged up for the eventual tag to the giant, and they absolutely erupt when he gets in there. Mm. I love how dominant he ends up being once he gets in, like you said. It makes him look incredible taking Anderson down like that, and it shows how smart the horsemen were being to try to keep him out of the ring. It justifies all the work that have been building that up in the promos. Yeah. I also like the implication that Benoit's personal feud with Sullivan got the better of him towards the end, as he doesn't even look back, despite knowing that Arne is now facing off against the Giant. True. Great from a storytelling perspective, good but slightly too long as a match.
1: I agree with that. I'm wondering if they did need to have the two of them fight so far away from the ring because they create a bit of a distraction. I don't know, I guess the idea is that they're far enough away that he doesn't see the choke slam, and then when he gets there he just doesn't care. It, makes it a little hard to follow, as well.
0: Yeah, I can see that. I, Like I said, it's, I think it's emphasizing how distracted he is by his feud with Sullivan personally. Sure. So that he he allows it to go that far away from the ring. There's blatantly no chance he could get back to help Arn, and he has to know that.
2: Yeah, that's fair.
1: Well, since he is not fighting Arn or Chris or, as you noted, Ric Flair, for the next show the will champion the Giant will have a different challenger at Hogwild, which we will get to later. As for Benoit, I've noted he would fight De Malenko at Hogwild, while Arn would work the Saturday night taping, winning a 40-second match against Hugh Morris. Yes. Easy payday, I guess.
0: <laughs> Tony says he doesn't know where to start in telling what's happened over the past few months. But he does know where it ends. It ends tonight. He throws to a video package covering the hostile takeover. It has the same music from the intro, but this time we do get very quiet audio from the clips that they show. Yeah. It features some text portrayed like newspaper headlines, or I guess maybe like stuff from a wrestling magazine.
1: Yeah, I guess the idea.
0: We see Hall's first appearance, Sting confronting Hall, Nash showing up, Hall and Nash attacking Bischoff at Great American Bash, clips of Luger, Savage, and Sting and then The Outsiders causing trouble in multiple nitros and facing off with cops. As we fade out, text ominously asks, Who is the third man? So our final match is The Outsiders, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall, and a mystery partner versus Sting, Lex Luger, and the Macho Man Randy Savage. The referee for this match is Randy Anderson.
1: As noted, there are key elements uh, about the story that they really emphasize, both in the intro and especially here. You have the invasion, you have a hostile takeover, and who's the third man? After the metaphorical shots are fired and Bischoff is taken out at Grimmaker Bash, they decide in the next Nitro to have a random drawing from a bowl that would have the top six names of WCW as decided by, I guess, the fish people. And they would pick the three people that would challenge the Outsiders, and their mysterious third man. The names in the bowl were Lex Luger, Randy Savage, Ric Flair, The Giant, Sting, and Hulk Hogan. Now, we don't actually see them draw the name from a bowl. We are told that in the back they drew the name from the bowl. You would think this big, momentous thing would get some sort of airtime, and that just a passing, oh, by the way, we, we drew the name for the team. <laughs> I'm just saying, if you don't show me a bowl, then that bowl is a lie. <laughs> I don't believe it happened.
0: But Al, that's how they handle almost every uh, War Games coin toss. That's true. That, those are so clearly legitimate. I don't understand how you can question this.
1: It just it's happened that the heels always win every coin toss, yeah. Uh, notable in the build-up, not the final nitro, but the Night before, there is a three-team tag title match involving the Steiner Brothers, Arlem Heat, and Lex Luger and Sting, who are the current WWE World Tag Team champions.
6: Mm -hmm.
1: The outsiders would sort of walk out to the ringside area, which would get all the attention of everyone nearby. The rest of the ring would stop wrestling, and the armed security would surround the ring to scare off these guys with bats. While that's happening, in the back corner of the screen, you would see Stevie Ray roll up Lex Luger for the pinfall. And they'd also cheat. Not that (laughs) I'm actually watching this happen. The pinfall happens, they roll Lex towards the ropes, and... I believe it's Booker is actually holding his feet there as well, so they're <laughs> they're guaranteeing this. Wow! So the bell rings. Luger kind of gets up, annoyed that they interrupted and they distracted him. It's like when someone's trying to watch a show and you got to call him to the kitchen, like, "What? I'm busy." <laughs> Not. Oh, I just lost the World Tag Title the hill for six months. Whatever. Too many important things going on, I guess.
0: Fair enough. At least it is Lex, the guy who uh, accepted a Chicago street fight with people without knowing what a Chicago street fight was. And uh, and missed his own world title match because he didn't get to the arena in time. In storyline, I yeah. I could actually see Lex being clueless enough to not realize he just lost the title.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it took him three months to get to uh, SummerSlam '93 to find out where the, where the match was. Thankfully, he brought his gear with them. Yeah, <laughs> it's just funny like in the middle of all these things. Oh, by the way, we, we got to take the tag titles off of Luger and Sting. Yeah, but but not to the outsiders because not oh, not yet. Yeah, so we just, let's just have this match happen and the heels win in the middle of all the chaos that no one seems to even notice it. And then this book, the tag champions, is fame the title on the uh, Saturday Night Taping before this. Oh, well, that is important.
0: Uh, Just because we haven't really covered the full intro to this, this all obviously opened with Hall appearing out of nowhere on Nitro, despite just recently been working for the WWF and kind of implying that he was still working for the WWF. Nash shows up the next week, they continue that on until great american bash where wwf has now threatened to sue so they uh dropped that part of the angle
1: <laughs> yes now mind you scott hall still acts like razor ramon still he's 100
0: percent doing razor ramon yeah he,
1: he still says meng as you love and yes. as we'll hear he even uses the scheme gene line which is from the wwf parroting wcw yeah and uh, reference the nacho man and trillionaire ted all these inside references
0: The implication is that there's this outside organization of some kind that's come in to try to destroy WSW. Now, there's nothing actually like 100% on the line with this match, right? No, right. Correct. It's just like.
1: They're coming into our territory. If they beat us,
0: we look look bad. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
1: But yeah, there's no, no actual stakes.
0: Okay. Michael Buffer does our ring introductions, probably thankful that the show isn't outside this time so he doesn't melt in his tux. That's true. He notes that a group of outsiders. He says it that way. Outsiders have threatened the sanctity of the WCW with a hostile takeover. And he says that this fight is to defend the honor and possibly the very existence of the WCW. Yeah. Man, this the WCW sounds like it's in big trouble. (laughs) I hope they'll do okay. (laughs) Yeah, right. The outsiders make their entrance to the pay-per-view theme. Heenan says he's got butterflies and compares this match to watching the verdict in the O.J. Simpson trial of all things. (laughs) Buffer apologizes as despite being told that there would be three of these men, there appear to only be two, Nash and Hall. The commentators are extremely confused and worried. Sting's music starts up, but quiets down as Mean Gene makes his way to the ring and gets Buffer's microphone.
4: Overwhelming wants to know. That's what it is. Everyone Absolutely. You th- and we, we need to know
3: right. Go, Gene, go. Yeah, there you go. Gentlemen, if I could have your attention, I don't have police protection with me at this time, but I want to confront you in front of this full house here at the Ocean Center and millions of others across the country and around the world. I don't see three men here tonight. Where is your
5: partner? You know, scheme gene. Chico you know too much already all you need to know little man is he's here and he's ready well
3: if he's wait wait a minute where is he is your partner telling me that your
4: third man is in the building oh he's here all right gene let me tell you something we got enough to handle it right now right here oh for quite Come on! Oh, man, I'm going to take Come one. on! They cannot handle our three guys. Yeah, okay, let's send
7: three out and just kick their teeth in and get it over with. There you go.
0: Sting's theme starts up again as Heenan asks if WCW has been scammed. Luger, Sting, and Savage make their way down the ramp looking determined. Even Heenan cheers for them. Hall and Luger get in a shoving match as the WSW team clearly questions where the supposed third man is. Mm
6: -hmm.
0: Heaton questions if the Outsiders really think they can win with a two-versus-three disadvantage. And Dusty smells a plot. Luger and Hall start, and Luger knocks Hall around and even slugs Nash, but Hall shoves him through the ropes. Nash grabs him from across the turnbuckle. Sting comes to the rescue with a stinger splash to Nash but that presses him down onto Luger onto the turnbuckle. Sure. Luger and Nash fall off the apron, but Luger is out cold. As Savage beats up Hall and Nash lies dazed, Sting goes to check on Luger. EMTs come out with a gurney and load Luger onto it. We get a replay, and Dusty claims that Luger hit his head on the ring post. The replay has a better angle for that claim, In the original shot, you can tell nothing of the sort happened, Yeah, but in the replay, they shoot it from behind Sting instead, so you can't clearly see what happens to Luger, so they can claim whatever they want. Sure. They they really should have shown it from that angle to begin with.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Hall sneaks over to try to attack Luger, but security wards him off, and Sting stands guard as the EMTs retreat with Luger. Hall and a recovered Nash wait for Sting to return. It's Sting versus Hall now, and Hall slaps Sting. So Sting gives this amazing, "Well, time to beat the crap out of Scott Hall kind of expression.
2: <laughs> yeah, he does. And
0: proceeds to do just that. <laughs> Tagged to Savage, but Hall punches him out of midair and uses Sting to distract Anderson so Nash can hit snake eyes on Savage. There's a great bit there where uh, Anderson goes over to get in Nash's face and question him, mm. but to get in his face, he has to climb up on the ropes.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah.
0: Savage manages a clothesline on Hall for two. Hall tags Nash, and Savage lands punches, but Nash slams him down and tries an elbow drop. Savage was clearly supposed to dodge, but the timing is off, so Nash lands ribs first on Savage's head.
2: Oh, yeah.
0: Absolute miracle that Savage's neck wasn't broken there. Yeah. And it didn't look very pleasant for Nash's ribs either.
1: Yeah, remind me a lot of that Starcade one.
0: Oh, the Vader and...
1: The Night Stalker where he, yes. he like starts to sit up for Vader's splash to come at him.
0: Oh, it looked like it hurt so bad. Savage understandably tags out immediately, and Heenan brilliantly makes the botch part of the story by worrying that Savage might now be out like Lex Luger.
1: Yeah. To be fair, I think he was supposed to make the tag anyways.
0: Probably, yeah.
1: I think that he was supposed to dodge, cleanly make the tag, but he definitely needs the tag now.
0: Yeah. Nash catches Sting with a knee strike and beats him down, as the commentators talk about sending a wrestler out to replace Luger, which would be massive cheating. Tony openly says to ignore the rules. Nash chokeslams Sting, and Heenan says, we're in deep sh- sand. <laughs> <laughs> Good save, Heenan.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: Hall and Nash trade off beating Sting up, using Savage to distract Anderson for some double teams. Hall earns two with a fallaway slam. Sting hits a nasty dropkick on Nash's thigh later on, but Nash tags Hall to stop Sting. Sting rolls him up, but Savage accidentally distracts the ref, so that only gets one. Tony roots for Sting and Savage to injure Hall or Nash. Yeah, he does. Kick a man while he's down, he cries. They're easier to reach, Heenan adds. (laughs) (laughs) Hall gets leverage from Nash on an abdominal stretch and even switches places with Nash behind the ref's back but Sting keeps his arm up on the third check. Hall and Nash earn further two counts with a hard Hall clothesline, Hall discus punch, and Nash sidewalk slam, but Sting, even in a daze, just won't stay down. Sting finally manages to stun Nash with a kick, then lands chops and punches while dodging Nash's swings. Sting decks Hall, dives at Nash, and drives him back just far enough to tag Savage. I love that spot.
1: Yeah. The positioning is very perilous though because he's yeah diving in the corner he he almost gives himself this done gun to make the tag
0: they actually do go down on this one rather than him just driving him back so yeah. yeah it's a little perilous savage hits a double axe handle it looked like hall was in position a tad too soon for it so there's a bit of an awkward pause yeah a little bit and he runs hall into nash then throws hall out over the top rope as anderson quite suddenly looks away for no reason
2: mm-hmm. yeah
0: Savage continues beating both up, but Nash slugs him in the crotch. With both men down, Anderson starts counting. Suddenly, there is a massive cheer. And we cut to the ramp, where Hulk Hogan is striding purposefully down. Tony and Dusty celebrate. Yeah, but whose side is he on? Heathen asks, to Dusty's consternation. (laughs) Hogan climbs in and tears his shirt as Nash and Hall retreat. Hogan pauses, slowly walks along the ropes, and looks out at the crowd for a long moment. Then leg drops Savage. (gasps) Twice. Mm -hmm. A small few fans actually cheer, but most of them seem shocked. Yeah. Hogan welcomes Hall and Nash into the ring, tosses Anderson over the ropes, leg drops Savage once more, and pins him as Hall counts three. Dusty says, Hogan flushed the career of a lifetime down the drain and made a deal with the devil. The match is officially a no contest. Hogan, Nash, and Hall pose in the center of the ring as booze start spreading through the crowd and people start throwing trash. Heenan is happy to see people throwing trash at Hogan. (laughs) Tony thinks Hogan has been planning this since 1994. Sting and Anderson help Savage out of the ring as garbage rains down. Notably, the WWE Network version edits something out. A fan rushes the ring, gets past security, and approaches Nash. So Nash decks him, and Hall stomps him as the Outsiders kick him out.
6: Oh.
0: I don't know what the guy was thinking he was going to do. He gets in the ring, he's, you know, face to upper torso with Kevin Nash, and Nash just clocks him.
1: Yeah, right? (laughs)
0: It's like, I don't know what you expected, dude. <laughs> Good move by Dash there, because you don't know what that guy was going to plan. Oh, yeah, no. You know, when someone r- rushes the ring, they, they had to do what they had to do. Absolutely, yeah. Why don't we talk about the match up to the ending first, and then do comments about the ending separately? They're kind of separate things, right?
1: Yeah, I, I, just, I agree with that.
0: All right, so thoughts on the match itself.
1: As a whole I liked it. With the extra tough beginning, like the promo bit and just how they really sell how serious it is, it definitely gives this feel that even again, even though there's no actual stakes of this match, that this is this big moment and this is a big fight. It's really well done the way they do that. Mm-hmm. Even if, you know, you're not the biggest fan of how much they do with the innovative story, the way they sell the beginning of it is very impressive.
0: Absolutely, yeah
1: the Match itself, it's fairly an even point. It's I still call it really good, though. So, for instance, it's smart that they make All and Nash look really strong, and a lot of it is done through cheating. Like when they switch out, or you know they're abstracted and they body slam. Sting, for instance, is probably savage. For the most part, it's not, hey, we're this indomitable force you can't beat, at least without cheating. Uh-huh. You need to really emphasize that with them. But there's little moments there where I don't know if it's timing issues or what, but like, okay, so for instance, after Savage just failed to roll out of the way of the elbow drop and tag out, Sting comes in and you're like, okay, Sting's gonna take over and then he kind of looks at Nash and just get knees in the stomach and goes down I'm like, oh, you didn't have a plan really, did you?
0: <laughs> That's one where I imagine that Nash was probably supposed to be up faster, but right. I think he's legitimately nursing some hurt ribs too.
1: Sure, sure, yeah. And again, this is, that's not the most important part of the match, but it's this little thing where it just feels like they build to a tag and then it just doesn't really go anywhere for a while. I think with the second tag out, the Savage goes for a bit until the end, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Other than the feel of it, there's nothing too different. I mean, you do have the abdominal stretch assistance spots. Uh, you have them switching without even making a fake tag, which is a little weird. They just switch out, and afterwards, they're like, Did you tag? He's like, Yeah, of course we did. <laughs> like but Riff, I mean, the, you would have heard it.
0: This is Kevin Nash, the man who will later convince someone that he power someone, so
1: That's true. He yeah. He has a plus five proficiency in charisma, so I guess that does does help. <laughs> As a whole, I, I again I still like the form of the match. They really sell that these guys work together. They managed to get Savage, who's you know, the unhinged one in the group to constantly try to get in and they you know, take advantage that way. And I like that the final like stop point isn't them legit taking over for Savage again. Because if they feel they they legit took Savage down again, then it look like Savage could not possibly ever stop them.
0: It leaves it in an even place, right? Yeah, which is which is kind of cool.
1: That said, as you know, from the time we watched originally and time since, I take great issue with how they pulled off the whole Luger is knocked out situation. Yeah, they they don't do it well they have to plan this really important spot for a major match. I don't take away from how hard that is to do and how to pull it off correctly, but it's also so important to the match and story, and it's like you stinger-splash Nash, who had a front headlock on the guy. Nash takes all of the impact on his side, but Luger, like, the shockwaves knock him out?
0: That's... Yeah. yeah. I, I like Dusty's explanation for it, Yeah, but for me, it really is just a camera angle thing. If they had shown the initial hit... From the same angle that they show the replay from, where you can't see what happens with Luger's head, then Dusty saying, "Oh my gosh, he hit his head on the ring post," that would work. I think yeah. that would work for me then. But the problem is that they initially show it from an angle where you can absolutely tell that all he gets is like he gets some of Nash's weight down on him yeah. for a bit, but which is probably not pleasant. But sure, it doesn't. It does not look like a knockout blow, even with it being the Stinger splash,
1: right? It's a case of, in the moment, I don't think it played out like they wanted to. So you want to do an angle where the guy doesn't look like he takes a serious injury, but obviously you don't want him to take a serious injury. Right, don't yeah, yeah. That. But yeah, as, as it is, every time I watch it, I'm like, yeah, that doesn't really look like anything happened. But okay, point A is Stinger Splash in corner, and point C is Luger taken out and can't be in the match. It's just getting between those two points doesn't quite play out for me. Yeah, but I'm willing to accept that as part of the match itself. It's not a deal breaker.
0: It's a it's a fine story concept. Yeah, and it, like even the plan for it, I think, is actually okay. It's just that it doesn't go off quite the way they wanted it to.
1: The commentators tried to sell like the idea that Luther taken out inadvertently by their own men is a real psychological disadvantage. Mm-hmm. I you, I get that. I don't think Sting necessarily wrestles like oh I'm conflicted about what I accidentally did. But you know, at the same time, he's only, he already got to wrestle this match, supposedly for the fate of all mankind. So,
0: and he, and, and to be fair, he does look more ticked off, yes, against the outsiders. So I think he, I don't think he necessarily portrays "I blame myself," but he definitely does portray "I blame the outsiders for them having Lucre in that situation or something." Yeah, I think you get the you still get the sense from him that he reacts to that spot,
1: right? And it's also a case of where. Because as I recall, they don't do too much with that. It's not like there's hostility between the two of them or you know, there's doubt in Sting's mind because this all happened because, you know, I messed up. or yeah, Because there's no real follow-up to this, it's just a way to have Luger in the match. And to his credit, we get to hear Luger's, uh, ex Luger selling for his brief. Oh my
0: gosh, yes. Yeah.
1: It's shouting full force while punching and being punched. It's great. That's great. It's just, it's just a shame that they, again, this key moment in the match and the story isn't played off right because they focus on his safety, which I I hundred percent agree with, and there's no real follow-up to it. It's Just it's a weird moment, to excuse to get Luger out of the match super quickly.
0: Yeah, it's it definitely a moment that feels like it uh, is bigger than it's actually used, right. To be
1: there's also little bits in the aftermath before Dusty decides that it was some horrific injury. So you can hear in his voice he kind of think he thinks something is up with this. Like Luger's. So they take it out really quickly. He's like, wait, what's going on here?
0: This was more about the moment than the match, but they actually put on quite a good tag match here, all the same. Yeah. There's some strange moments, notably, as you said, Luger's elimination, and there's a few botches, but the match as a whole is exciting, and all four guys, Sting especially, do a great job showing the emotion of the match. Sting is also no surprise, an amazing face in peril, managing to look out on his feet in the later stages, but still hit every spot perfectly. Mm -hmm. This really builds up Hall and Nash, which is very necessary, considering they're going to be huge villains for WCW for the next year and a half at least. Yeah. They come off as powerful, able to immediately believably face WCW's best fighters, and beat up Sting to an almost Vader-like degree. But, still without Sting or Savage ever feeling weak. It's a really good main event, and the emotion attached to it makes it really intense. As you pointed out, I, I like that it kind of ends evenly rather than one side looking like they have the advantage before the ending kicks off. Absolutely, yeah. Speaking of the ending, what's your thoughts on the ending?
1: It's interesting having Hogan sort of run out because he hasn't been mentioned other than he's one of the six people in the drawing. I think he's been, he's been away from Nitro for at least a month, I believe.
0: I think the most they give you is like there's a little video package of what he's been up to uh, while he's been away.
1: Right. But there's no, like, bitch where he's, like, talking about, you know, her what's going on in the WWE brother, and he gotta come back and take care of this. Yeah. I absolutely see the Heenan mindset. Plus the fact that he you know, famously hates Hogan in character. Hogan just sort of appearing out of nowhere, running out there. You know, he's not coming out after Luger's down. He's there far after Luger's down. He's just kind of running out at the end, and it's still missing the third man. It's absolutely understandable why Heenan he goes... Yeah, but whose side is he on? That famous line. Which, as you know, they cut from the immediate video release, like the VHS releases, because they thought it spoiled things. But it's been restored in every other format since, because it's so notable.
0: Yeah, yeah. people claim that Heenan accidentally gave it all away with his but whose side is he on, but I think that's just hindsight talking. Like, Yeah, agreed. I, I really doubt anyone watching this live heard him say that and thought anything more of it other than Heenan always hates Hogan and always implies that he's untrustworthy. He talks about that for every Hogan appearance that he commentates from Hogan's first appearance in 1994
1: to now. Right. Also notable, is important for context. He's saying that in commentary. He never said, he doesn't say that in an interview. So a live crowd doesn't hear this.
0: Right, that's also true, yeah.
1: Yeah, so that's a big thing, because people act like, because he said it, somehow the audience there hears, which is obviously not true.
0: No, yeah. Anyone who says, like, oh, yeah, Heenan he gives it all away there, it, it has not paid any attention to Bobby Heenan for the past two years. Right. In which in which case, shame on you, you've missed some good commentary performances. I have, yeah.
1: <laughs> well, like, and the other thing for context is that, so he's saying that while well, Hogan's jogging out, mm-hmm. the time from, like, Hogan jogging out to the leg drop is, like,
0: wait, It's 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 short, yeah.
1: Yeah. You might go, that's when one when he says that, wait, what?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And It's interesting. You made point to note that he sort of he has that pause. He looks around, and then his leg drop is a nice bit as well. Like that's probably Terry play the actual man going. Mm-hmm. I'm really sure I'm going to do this. All right.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think that's part of the act. I think that's Hogan having a last thought of is Is this really right for my career? Right. It's It's interesting because. You do have to consider for a moment the the monumental change this is going to be. Oh, yeah. That Hogan has been a face for, I think, about 15 years at this point. Yeah. Like, not just a face, but a super face. Obviously, we know that the NWO angle is a massive success for WCW in the end. Their shirts and their stuff sell like hotcakes, make a ton of money. Sure, But at the time, think about this in context of a Hogan heel turn. Think about what a heel has been for Hogan. Hmm. You get a good run, you get a few pay-per-views against whoever the top face is, which is usually Hogan. Yeah. But then you're vanquished, you go back to the mid-card. And if you're lucky, your character gets tweaked, and you get popular in your own right again, but there's no guarantee. Right. So, yeah, I don't think there's any surprise that Hogan might have needed a moment to think, am I really about to do this?
1: Well, yeah, well, look at look at even the very recent booking that was done for him. <laughs> I mean, Ed, Ed Leslie's his buddy, turns heel on him, gets that terrible Starcade man. Oh, the worst. And then he becomes to Zodiac, and then Booty Man, he's gone through three or four of these things after turning heel, and they went nowhere. Mm-hmm. Even with Hogan's support, you know, as politicking for his buddy, there's nothing happening to that. Or you look at the very same thing with John Tenta. Coming out, you're the, you're the shark, and uh-huh. you lose, and yeah. No,
2: absolutely. Yeah.
0: This is one of WSW's most famous and justifiably praised twists. It isn't 100% perfect, and I'll get to that, but Hogan coming out, getting a huge crowd pop, only to betray his pal Savage and WSW as a whole, is an absolutely amazing moment. Yeah. The weird thing about it is, why does Hogan throw the ref out? Yeah. He is technically a legal participant in this match. He could just get a legit tag from Nash, I'm pretty sure he was the legal man at the time, Or, you know, just ignore that, because that always gets ignored. Yeah. And then pin Savage for the actual three count. There's no reason WSW can't just straight up lose this match. It's okay. They got betrayed.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: It'd even make the forthcoming NWO even bigger villains. It would make sense that he throws the ref out if Anderson more visibly refused to count for him. Yeah, sure. But he just seems distressed and confused, not actually refusing.
1: Well, I, yeah, I, mean, I, I could picture it playing out. Okay, so Hogan comes in, does his two leg drops. Randy Sidney goes, What are you doing? You know, what are you doing? Like, you make sure so you, either you can hear him or you can, fairly at least you can see him. You know, his big, rough pantomiming. Mm-hmm. And Hogan's like, I'm third man. Like, maybe flash the big three, like the fourth and symbol, you know what I mean? Yeah. Just have him, like, sort of cockily walk over to the corner, tags Nash, walks over and, you know, puts the foot on him or does a straight pin on him. Yeah. Yeah. And the ref is like, give him this, like, dirty look, but has to count the pinball. Yeah. It's interesting to note that this is like this huge moment, defining moment for the company, for better or for worse, how storylines play out. And there's no finish. Yeah, it's it's true.
0: From how the pin goes, it's pretty dang evident it would have been a legit three count.
1: Of course, yeah, yeah.
0: But still, it's bizarre that they decided to go that way with it, that they didn't just give their new massive heel faction a actual win.
1: No, that's a good point. I was thinking about that as well. Yeah, like, yeah, why why is this a no contest? It's just very mm-hmm.
0: Otherwise, I really liked this ending. I really like how it went. And it's fascinating psychological analysis of Hogan as well.
1: (laughs) No, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Mean Gene climbs into the ring with the drink cups and other trash still raining down and approaches Hogan.
3: Hulk Hogan, excuse me, excuse me. What in the world are you thinking?
5: Me, Gene, the first thing you need to do is to tell these people to shut up if you want to hear what i got to say.
3: I have been with you for so many years. For you to join up with the likes of these two men absolutely makes me sick to my stomach. And I think that these people here and a lot of other people around the world have had just about enough of this man, this man and you want to put yourself in this group? You've got to be kidding me.
5: Well, the first thing you've got to realize, brother is this right here is the future of wrestling. You can call this the new world order of wrestling, brother. These two men right here came from a great big organization up north and everybody was wondering who the third man was. Well, who knows more about that organization than me, brother?
3: I've been there, I've done that. You have made the wrong decision in my opinion.
5: Well, let me tell you something. I made that organization a monster. I made people rich up there. I made the people that ran that organization rich up there, brother. And when it all came to pass, the name Hulk Hogan, the man Hulk Hogan, got bigger than the whole organization, brother. And then, Billionaire Ted, amigo, he wanted to talk turkey with Hulk Hogan. Well, Billionaire Ted promised me movies, brother. Billionaire Ted promised me millions of dollars and Billionaire Ted promised me world caliber matches. And as far as Billionaire Ted goes, Eric Bischoff and the whole WCW goes, I'm bored, brother. That's why these two guys here, the so-called outsiders, these are the men I want as my friends. They're the new blood of professional wrestling, brother. And not only are we gonna take over the whole wrestling business with Hulk Hogan and the new blood, the monsters with me, we will destroy everything in our path, Mean Gene. Look at all of this crap in this ring.
3: This is what's in the future for you if you wanna hang around the likes of this man, Hall, and this man, Nat.
5: As far as I'm concerned, All this crap in the ring represents these fans out here. For two years, brother, for two years, I held my head high. I did everything for the charities. I did everything for the kids. And the reception I got when I came out here, you fans can stick it, brother. Because if it wasn't for Hulk Hogan, you people wouldn't be here. If it wasn't for Hulk Hogan, Eric Bischoff would be still selling meat from a truck in Minneapolis. And if it wasn't for Hulk Hogan, all these Johnny-come-latelys that you see out here wrestling wouldn't be here. I was selling out. The world, brother, why they were bumming gas to put in their car to get to high school. So the way it is now, brother, with Hulk Hogan Good. and the New World Organization of Wrestling, brother. Me and the new blood by my side. What you gonna do when the new world organization runs wild on you? What you gonna do? What
3: are you hey, gonna do? Don't touch me I'll get- Tony, Bobby, Dusty, damn it! Let's get back to you. All right, we have seen the end
7: of Hulkamania. For Bobby the Brain Heenan, for Dust, for Dusty Rhodes, Gene Okerlund. I don't know. I'm Tony Schiavone. Hulk Hogan, you can go to hell. We're out of here, straight to hell.
0: Hogan delivers this massive, industry-changing promo, while trash is raining down, soda splashing over him, Gene and the Outsiders, and just after a fan was incensed enough to actually rush the ring. To say that it's a distracting environment would be an understatement. Absolutely, yeah. And that's without taking into account the fact that again, Hogan is taking a massive, risky change to something that had worked well for him for fifteen years, and it's a great promo. It is, yeah. It's bitter, angry, and arrogant, instantly turning the Hogan character from superhero to supervillain, and naming, and accidentally briefly renaming, and setting up the NWO as the heel faction for WCW. Say what you want about Hogan, the man can talk.
1: He's very confident, yeah.
0: Yeah. I particularly love the improv on Gene and Hogan's part of involving the trash that's getting pelted into the ring in the promo. Yes. Really great work. And uh, bonus points to Nash here for playing bodyguard and batting sodas out of the air.
1: Yeah. It's funny, Nash uh, we've covered has a very understated integral role in these kind of things. Mm -hmm. Because he's the one that's got to hold that cake at the next show. Oh, right, 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 yeah. That uh, whole time that they decided to put in the corner in a box and he's got to hold it there.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true.
1: Yeah, I mean, like again, regardless of how you feel about how the NBO story plays out over the next three, four years, and how, you know, all these things that we did wrong because they wouldn't change, or they changed too much, or all these things that happen. This moment as a whole is Hogan becoming this new character, taking this shell off of Hulk Hogan baby face, say your prayers, you know, your vitamins, all that, and just becoming this bitter, angry guy. It's done in a way that his anger is not warranted, which is what makes him a good heel. Yes, yeah. His anger is that, look, you know, I made company a bunch of money, which they paid me, and then I came here and he paid me, paid me more money, but you don't give me enough stuff to do, so I'm bored. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm going to betray the company that is still paying me, by the way, and form a new company that's going to apparently destroy them from the inside out and or take over or replace them.
0: Yeah, it's it's absolutely fascinating, the the look at this character that he's developing here and just just to go back to our earlier thoughts about the Hogan psychology here it's 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 interesting like he he shows a lot of hesitation before the leg drop yeah but once he's decided to do this credit to him he goes all in yeah like he could have done this promo in such a way that there was some wiggle room yeah where he didn't like really get on the fans or anything like that but i mean he goes full tilt I hate WCW, I hate You Mean Gene, I hate the fans, I hate the WCW wrestlers, I hate Eric Bischoff. Like, yeah. he just bulldozes his entire character to this point. If if this didn't work, you could not have just, like, gone, you know, oh, a month later, oh, this isn't quite working, let's just turn him back into regular Hulk Hogan. Yeah, right. You You can't do that. Like, they can manage it kind of like, you know, what is it? two three years down the line that they've 99 yeah yeah late 99 i think that
1: right before road wild 99 yeah
0: yeah they can turn him back then but that's like two years down the line from this moment or three years down the line from this moment Mm -hmm. and that's how long it takes for them to be there to be enough distance between this promo and hulk hogan that you can have fans potentially treat him as a good guy again
1: Mm -hmm. he's the guy at the party who um trips and everyone laughs at him, he goes, you know, screw you, screw you, he's like yelling and swearing and, you know, saying I always hated you and never, you know, liked you and like breaking a lamp and then like running out the door and like slamming it shut. There's no, you can't be that guy and go back and go, Hell, God, I was really sorry, I was drinking, is it okay? Right. Can I go back in? Yeah. It's that same level of, say, a scorched earth of this character mm-hmm. and this mindset that had been his for, yeah, again, like 15 years.
0: Which I think is necessary. I think they had to go this far with it, right? Because yeah, you see, actually, like in the last moments of the match, as I pointed out, there's a few fans that actually do cheer briefly, and I think for those fans, it probably is. Oh, Hulk Hogan just did something. Hulk Hogan's the good guy, of course. It's right. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think him cutting this promo ensures that he fully turns the crowd on him, except for the bikers at Sturgis.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: who apparently missed all of this. Apparently so. I think him going this far was. Really bold, but also really necessary.
1: Agreed, yeah. Yeah, there's no shade to the great of this. There's no nuance to it. It's, you know, I have given doing everything I wanted, but now I'm bored, so I'm going to join these two strangers and just wreck your company.
2: Yeah.
1: Oh, uh, give a brief shout-out to our uh, former president, George H.W. Bush. For coined the phrase "new world order" in a speech, I believe in nineteen ninety two. I'll think if, I, if I can find the audio clip, I'll post it. <laughs> it's important to remember, remember in a weird way that this guy who well, had nothing to do with you know the Simpson, let alone wrestling, where there was swearing and violence, indirectly gave them the name of their like biggest organization of all time. <laughs> History is weird like that. That's all. Yeah, yeah. So coming off of this, of course. Sting is very p***ed off at the Outsiders for what they did, uh, what he did, sort of, But so that leads to a big tag match at Wild between the Outsiders, Sting and Luger, who recovers from his horrific, not really, injury in time to wrestle a match. Meanwhile, on the fall of Nitro, the Giant would call out Hogan because, you know, he's a guy I want to be like, which is ironic because his whole thing is, his storyline is, my dad under the giant was screwed by you. So I want to kill you. But apparently I also want to be you. It's an awkward line. He tries to walk in that promo, but basically, Hogan is like the prototypical wrestler. He wanted to be like, so he takes it really personally. Giant gives the, the wrestling equivalent of the I'm two weeks away from retirement uh, line. <laughs> he challenges Hogan to the to top match. It's not Hogan that challenges him. And he says, you know, look, as long as I hold the WCW world title, everything is going to be fine. Oh, Yo, boy. He just... Tie yourself in the foot, buddy.
0: Yeah. I love some of the promos that happen over the next few weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Not just not just the ones we've covered with the giant that are amazing. I know there's one that Rey Mysterio gets where he, he says he betrayed us. He, like, he takes it really personally. He does, yeah. And Kevin Sullivan's, I think, is, is great, where he's like, I wanted to destroy Hulkamania, but I couldn't because he destroyed it himself. Yes, yeah. <laughs> he's like, he's really he's really hurt. <laughs> yeah. <it laughs> I, pretty- I didn't get to kill you. Yeah right. <laughs> I appreciate that. This again goes to the making the end of it with something very different. The whole company reacts to this to Hogan's turn and this the formation of this mega heel group in a way that you don't really see happening for like any other factions in WCW. Even the Four Horsemen, they're they're treated as a big deal whenever they form, especially like the the early incarnations of them. But the Four Horsemen even don't get this whole, like, the company stops to consider the magnitude of what has just occurred. Because the Four Horsemen are not trying to kill WCW. That's true. They're trying to dominate WCW. They're trying to have all the titles, but they're not trying to end the company. The NWO are trying to end the company. That's their stated goal.
1: Exactly, yes.
0: It makes sense that it is, like, this monumentally huge deal for people in the weeks to come.
1: Yeah, like, the Four Horsemen, you know, they'll... And they'll control like the titles. Someone who's going for those titles will care. But if you're outside in your own thing, you know, if you're Ron Bass and someone else, you aren't gonna cut a promo on um Jimmy Valiant, for instance. Yeah. And go, but that Flair, I can't really betray the end of the way, I'm gonna take him out. Anyways, that's this thing, yeah. It's definitely different.
0: And and like Flair always has a pretty good relationship with the commentators or announcers, backstage interviewers and stuff. Yeah. So They're a huge faction, and they're really dangerous, but they're also, fundamentally, they are part of the company. Yeah. That's the difference with this angle. Agreed, yes. All right, let's take a look for a moment at some what-ifs. I think the one you and I have both heard as a possible backup, if Hogan had decided in the end not to do it, uh, is at least rumored that the backup plan was Sting. Right, correct. Yeah, so what's your thought on that as a possibility?
1: It would have been a harder sell, for sure. Again, the angle is, here's these two guys that came from WBF, and we implied that they worked from until very recently. We had to yeah. change our mind. So Hogan, being a recent hire, connects well to that. You'd have to find a really good explanation for, for Sting to say why he's betraying the company. Because, like, mm-hmm. you know... It's not like he's been de pushed or, you know, he's not on the show, so obviously he's named one of this top six stars in the company and he gets strong for this match. It's not like he could go, oh, you know, you know, you guys don't care about me anymore. I haven't had a world title shot in six months.
0: Yeah, closest you can get is maybe there's a few points because of the whole Sting and Luke are best buddies angle, where Sting gets a kind of a mixed reaction at times, yeah. but people still clearly love Sting.
1: Yeah, I think the most you could do is Essentially, the detached thing they eventually get with this angle. Mm-hmm. I can see that. Like, you know, you guys don't trust me, so I'm just going to go off my own and maybe I'll, I'll help Luger. But yeah, you'd have to really find a creative pitch for this. And I'm not sure what it would be.
0: Yeah, I'm in agreement on that. I think it would be hard to justify from a story standpoint. From a reaction standpoint, it would be massive. Yeah. He's the only guy that I think you could do as the third man who would get as big a reaction as Hulk Hogan. Yeah. You could you could have theoretically done like a flare or something like that, but Flair people are used to booing. Right. Sting they don't. Hogan's the superhero, Sting's the superhero. Right, yeah. The third man I think has to be a superhero for this to get this big reaction.
1: It has to be a dagger in your side, yeah, yeah. twisted. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean storyline, I could see a pitch for Flair if you had no other option. Mm-hmm. You know, Flare is so sub obsessed that he, he's willing to destroy the company or at the very least, join these guys or form the NWO and take over and replace the company. So we'll we'll make this company in my image. These people and you know, the mysterious backers and whatnot. Yeah, but to your point, it wouldn't have the same crowd reaction. It's not betrayal.
0: Yeah, it wouldn't be this this huge impact. It'd be surprising, but it it wouldn't be this huge impact. I think the NWO under Flair would end up a slightly more intense version of the Four Horsemen. Yeah where the NWO under a Hogan or Sting is this shocking betrayal type of thing. Yeah. But like you said, Hogan has the much better story justification there.
1: Okay, so one person I can make a pitch for, and it's a little rejigging, as they say, but Mm -hmm. we could do it with the same storyline, just moving the match bit around. Match starts out the same way, but the guy in the opening salvo, actually taken up by Friendly Fire, is Savage. Okay. Hogan obviously has a really strong claim to I came to this company, but Savage definitely came after him, so he could make that claim. Savage would be that person; he'd be seemingly taken out. But then he, instead of Hogan, running out, he comes back out and is like, "Look, you know, our hero has come back to help us." Savage, you know, runs in, climbs the top rope, then a double drop to Luger instead of Nash, and then the whole thing plays out.
0: I could certainly see that playing out quite well. That's probably the superior version of the other possibility. That- I don't think I've ever heard this discussed as like an actual rumor that it was gonna happen, but mm-hmm. it might have just been something you and I theorized on years ago, um, that Luger would be the other interesting option. Correct. And just going off of him being taken out in that kind of weird way in the match that Yeah.
1: And the you know, this during notification is that, you know, he he came in, you know, he had to petition to get a title shot and then they got the one and then, you know what I mean? And he's come in, no one trusts him, no one believes him. He has a more rich history with WCW, you know, mm-hmm. leaving the WF and coming back. So it's almost you know, a more personal betrayal, because he did work there before. Yeah, he
0: actually is a WCW guy originally.
1: Right. Whereas Savage and Hogan, these scenarios, just came in as big stars, and so mm-hmm. they have less of a personal connection to the company.
0: It's interesting to think of the Luger possibility. I think that probably plays out similar to, to what you proposed as Savage in that case, that he gets taken out early on, he comes back by surprise at the and and you know, ends up doing a big move to probably Sting to really twist the knife in that case. I think the Luger possibility is, is very interesting. I don't think that it gets you the same levels as as the Hogan one would. No. For the faction. What it does have that would be really interesting is a very, very deeply personal uh Sting feud with the NWO then. Yeah. Because, you know, obviously Sting has for the entire year been doing this, you know. I trust Luger even though nobody else does. Yeah. If he was paid back for that by Luger stabbing in the back, porting the torture rack on, and betraying the entire company, that would be huge.
1: Right. And If the fall brawl bit with fake sting comes out, and you know, it's like after all this, you guys still hold Luger against me because I, I, I trust him as my friend. Mm-hmm. Um, then he does the famous turn his back on them promo and leaves. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think all that can still work. I just don't think that the NWO faction itself is quite as big. It becomes more of a, I feel like it actually becomes more of a Sting storyline then. It does. Rather yeah. than a company storyline.
1: I think the closest approximation you have to what we got with the NWO as far as the Hollywood persona, the crazy self centric promos, and, you know, all that stuff, I think close you get to that is Savage, if you yeah. ever really saw him pull out. I think Savage has the in-ring gravitas, he has the promo skills to do all that and get as close as you can to Hogan. Alternate reality, I could see Savage in Hogan's place and doing those twisty camera, black and white, and promos.
0: Absolutely. I mean, obviously, Savage does eventually do oh, to say,
1: and, and we do get those, so we have some reference for that.
0: Yeah. I think he's probably the best second choice if they hadn't got Hogan for me. And, and Sting, I think, is a strong third choice. You really would have needed to set that up in the weeks leading up to the show to prepare the crowd for it, because as we've seen in 1999, they try and turn Sting, and the crowd just like continues treating him as a face because he's Sting and they love him. Yes. <laughs> so.
1: Yeah, even when he blatantly joins up the Luger as a heel, I think they beat Hogan with the bat, to take the world title from him. It's still like, yay, ho- yay, Sting. <laughs> yeah. You hear my alternate pitch? Oh, sure. Yeah. So, my alternate pitch is what gets us to the same point, but just differently. So, you do the drawing, and they draw Sting, and you draw Savage, and then you draw Hogan. Mm. Hogan is drawn as a third person for Team WCW against the Outsiders, and a mysterious third man. Now, given his filming schedule and as part of the story, you still keep him absent. Don't have him come in, you don't have him cut promos with the other teammates. You can maybe have a video of him where he says, you know, be there at the Beach as a date, you know. But the key thing is he's not around like with the rest. Now, the way you get him out of the match is, so the announcers are talking about how important the show is, and suddenly they're told something happened in the back. We are told what happened. We don't see it. This is important for the story. We found Hogan you know, laying on his dressing room. He says the outsiders attacked him. We said, oh, we'll send the WCW medical team to check him. He said, no, 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 I got my own doctor. I'll be fine. As it gets to nearer to the match, maybe with that second Mean Gene promo, he gets an update saying Hogan's injury is worse than he thinks. He's not going to, be able to make it up for the match, so it's just that to go on with Sting and Savage in a two-on-three scenario. Then of course their men doesn't show up. we obviously don't have the Luger spot because Luger's not involved. Right. It's just straight two-on-two two match until we get to the big finish after the big low blow by Nash. Suddenly Hogan's coming out, but see, how come on crutch because that's something you can just get around easily. And anyway, he gets in there, he swings it around to make sure that Nash and Hall. Stay away. Suddenly, he drops a crutch to the outside, shakes his leg to show that it's not injured, and does leg drop. Boom.
0: Mm-hmm. That would work. It removes the need to do the awkward Luger removal spot to get a two-on-two match.
1: Right. I, again, and, yeah, I'm not saying my story
0: idea is better
1: than, you know, are or with that thing. Just another way you could approach it with, you know, 20-plus years of hindsight and all sorts yeah. of ways to look at it.
0: The, the nice thing with, with your angle on it is it makes it... Not just a betrayal of WCW, but direct betrayal of the team, which, which is kind of nice, yeah. I like that. Tony starts signing off, tells Hogan to go to hell, finishes signing off, and adds straight to hell as a parting shot.
1: <laughs>
0: Best sign-off in WCW history.
1: Yeah, it's, it's gotta be up there.
0: We get some credits over the Ocean Wave graphics, which seem a little too cheerful for what just happened, yeah. and Bash at the Beach 1996 is done. So overall thoughts on Bash of the Beach 1996?
1: As a whole, it's a pretty strong show. Match quality-wise, it's pretty solid throughout. Promos are nice enough to build up the matches throughout and constantly set up the main event and the main angle. Like any of the things they do with the NWO in future, there's bits where I really wish they would focus on the match that they're covering. Instead of going, oh, I wonder what's going to happen in this, this main event tonight, you know, Hogan's going to do blah, blah, blah. Like, they did a lot. That's a general WWE problem, and to be fair, a WWF problem as well. Mm-hmm. It's just a wrestling problem. But it's that's a pretty minor thing. If you just watch the show as a single thing, I think you get all of the information you need.
6: Mm-hmm.
1: You maybe don't get full context, like, why John Tenta's got half his face and head shaved off, like little things like that. Or why certain people are feuding, but
0: but even with that, they actually make sure to make that part of the match too. With Bubble like cutting the hair, again. true. So you can be like, oh, that's why.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's fair. I think it's it's a fully contained thing that builds up. Obviously, lots of future shows with the angles and how they play out. Obviously, there's some stuff that's not as good as the rest. The Public Enemy, NASA Boys match is hampered by number of factors we covered. I still don't know why Mongo and Joe Gomez were on the show. With the match they did, when we have again, the tag title matches not on it. It's it's not a thing where, oh, this show is important historically, but it sucks, which is good. There's fortunately some shows like that, where the undercard is pretty un- unremarkable, but something major thing happened, so you got to watch it. It's still an enjoyable show as a whole as, without that, if having some points and even matches like any show does. And ultimately, they set up this massive angle that sets them on a course for better or for worse for the next three years Mm -hmm. than the future.
0: Yeah, I called this one of WSW's most consequential shows, perhaps the most consequential show, and it is. It starts off the NWO angle that will, no exaggeration, change WSW forever. Yes. Even beyond the point when it probably should have changed back, but that's a story for another time. Yes. It's a historically noteworthy show and a massive pivot point for the company. It's also quite a nice show. There are nine matches, and I enjoyed all but one, though some certainly more than others. The one I didn't enjoy, Gomez versus McMichael, isn't that long, and it's not like it's a huge disaster. Yeah. The gimmicks of the matches are often odd, and the double-trouble-bash-at-the-beach-bubble idea should have been chucked in the trash can the moment it was proposed. <laughs> but from start to finish, I found the matches entertaining. The promo content is almost universally excellent. Hogan's promo is the historical highlight, of course, but we get a lot of standout promos tonight, particularly Flair, Sting, Savage, Luger, and Arn Anderson. People just seemed on, ready to build up their stories well, even if a few word flubs come up from time to time, like Flair mixing up Conan and Malenko, or Hogan accidentally renaming his newly created heel faction. Yeah. Those don't spoil the promos, they're just too good. hmm add to that some truly great commentary work from my beloved team of Tony, Bobby, and Dusty. They do an excellent job of covering the individual matches and getting across their stories, all while building up the big story of the night. I do agree that they mentioned the outsider's angle a lot, Yeah, but for me, I didn't feel that, it, that they ever let it overwhelm a match that was going on right then.
1: No, I think it's fair, yeah.
0: And it, it probably helps that this show is justifiably huge. Like The, the commentary justifiably comes back to those points a lot where in other NWO shows it feels like it's overdone. Yeah. It makes the Outsiders match feel significant, and it builds intrigue without making the rest of the show feel like an afterthought. The one real complaint I'll level, and this continues for much of the NWO era, is that Tony and Dusty both openly suggest breaking the rules and advise WSW wrestlers to fight like heels against the Outsiders. It's fine for Heenan to do that, but it shouldn't be okay for Tony and Dusty to do that. Good guys are good guys, because they're righteous and noble even when it's hard to be so. We do have some production flubs, from awkward camera shots to missed important moments in matches, but it isn't enough to disrupt the show. Otherwise, WCW did a great job with the show's look and feel, with an excellent beach set that got used well in some matches, the amazing crab cam, and good use of graphics to emphasize the theme. The video packages I could go either way on. They do cover the story well, but they're quite long, and the lack of narration just makes them feel longer. Doing just one of the two would have been better. Yeah, I think so. Overall, I found this an enjoyable show that probably punches a bit above its weight due to its sheer importance to the company. WSW had a big, important night, and they probably honestly could have slacked off for the rest of the show because frankly no one was going to remember much other than the ending. Yes. But they didn't slack off. They put on a good, solid show that was worthy to have such a huge angle on it. All right. We've reached Match of the Night and MVP then. So Al, what is your Match of the Night?
1: So for sheer drama purposes, the main event is really strong. Obviously, there's no finish that's discussed. There's certainly high points in the previous tag match with the Giant and Sullivan versus Arnon and Benoit. The strong moments as well in Flair and Conan. mm mm-hmm. Some enjoyable but basic stuff in from the DDP match as well as the 10 to 10 match, but for me the best match beginning to end is the stereo Psychosis match. Ironically, on a show that's so much about here's this major build to this angle that's gonna change wrestling forever, you gotta see it. This opening match with like no actual story in it seals the show. Okay, it's a credit to how well they worked around the fact that no story or build up for the match really happens.
0: Mhm. Yeah, for me it's close. It is between Mysterio versus Psychosis and the main event. Mysterio versus Psychosis is amazing with a mind-blowing finish. Yeah. But I think I still have to give the edge to the main event. The sheer importance of that match combined with good storytelling, a big angle to finish, and some darn good tag team action in the middle. Makes for a justifiably famous match to finish off one of WSW's most notable shows.
1: Right, fair is fair. For a match with no finish, it is a really close call for me in that as well. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Nor- normally that would be such a huge point against a match, but just the the sheer noteworthiness of the angle and where and where it goes, yeah, outweighs my normal dissatisfaction with it not really having a finish.
1: I, I agree. Yeah, absolutely. MVP. MVP is tricky choice. On one hand, I could see Hogan for just going through with this big angle, but obviously he doesn't He doesn't do anything other than come out and hit a leg drop and did that promo, which is still keeping him in contention, obviously. Brain and Psychosis is both a really good match. DDP and whatever he did out of Duggan certainly helps. Gene, honestly, meeting and starting to sell everything throughout and doing the in-character interviews with other people throughout is honestly really... It's rare I mention just for, it, but honestly, he's a good could be a fair choice as well. Absolutely, yeah. Flair for his absolutely insane promo and performance in the match, and how important he is to that? Giant for his limited but very strong performance in his match, and how the fact that he carries Sullivan on his shoulder while climbing on the steps is impressive.
0: With with ease, like
1: with ease, yeah, yeah. Two hundred plus fifty pound man on his shoulders, and he's hung over the ropes down these these big steps. Yeah, as far as the main event goes. Luger doesn't done enough to count, unfortunately, and his promo kind of not that great. Savage is part of the match. is really good. His promo content is also really good. The Outsiders don't have promo content, but we see the, the build-up in the show, and their points in the match is strong, but it probably feels like cheating because it's done so often, but honestly, he's so good in his promo, in the build-up to this. He's so good in the match itself, and he's just so important to everything on the show. I had to go with my Easy pick, which is Sting.
0: I will say he was my runner-up.
1: Figured that, yeah.
0: Sting does tremendous emotional performance in the match and the promo, sells like mad to get the Outsiders over, and gives a great build-up to the match overall. So, a very worthy choice, for sure. Absolutely, yeah. For my part, I do have to give this to Hogan. Fair enough. He's not in the match itself, but for the ending moments. But, my goodness, that promo he cuts afterwards... It is literally career-changing and company-changing. It kicks off an angle that will redefine WSW for most of the remainder of its run. I would give this to that promo for the historical significance alone, but it helps that it's also an excellent promo.
1: Yeah, I will say this is definitely the closest I've ever gotten to picking Hogan for MVP.
0: (laughs) It's rare for me to pick someone as MVP when they aren't really in the match.
1: Yeah, no, I, I get it. and and
0: art like a show wide role like an, a, a commentator or something, but it's just such a notable notable thing,
1: right? Because part of the reason the turn works so well is that there's like no mention of Hogan like anything mm-hmm. at this. So when he appears, you're just like, oh, Hogan's here, great. Yeah, you you know like Hogan talking about what he's gonna if he has to come out and help or something. You know, if any build up to him being here. Yeah. Let alone seeing him. So when he shows up, you don't like look at a pro- previous promo he bit Vincent's like, that's weird. What he said there. I wonder if he's a bad guy. Why
0: would you think that he's the bad guy? But yeah. but at the same time, it doesn't feel like you've been cheated.
1: Yeah, because he immediately explains here's why I'm the villain, you oh,
0: mm-hmm. and you're like, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, absolutely. And that wraps up our review of Bash at the Beach 1996. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Links will be available in the episode description. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details, and share your own thoughts about each show as we go through. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, TuneIn, Verbal, or Audible. And please, if you've enjoyed this show, give us a rating or review, and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance and pay-per-view figures, and to Gina Trujillo for our logo. Next up, Bash at the Beach 1997. Hollywood Hogan and Dennis Rodman crash the beach. Gosh darn it, you two, now my beach insurance rates will go up. I'm never lending you the keys to my beach again. <laughs> this is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgeon signing off. Good night, everybody.
2: Hey, Bob, you can go
1: to hell. Straight to hell. <laughs>
0: Weren't you going to tell me to go straight to hell, man?
1: Oh, I go, go straight to it. hell, I guess, if you if you have time. Do you,
0: want me, do you want me to do it again so you can get that in?
1: Oh, okay, yeah, sorry. I don't know why that didn't occur to me, so you teed me up for that. I was just, I was just ready for my line. I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes sense.